This is Audible. Audible.com presents the Senate Judiciary Committee's hearings on the nomination of Judge John Roberts to be Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. We invite you to visit Audible.com for the best downloadable audiobooks, as well as subscriptions and podcasts of top audio programs, including The New York Times, This American Life, The Wall Street Journal, and The New Yorker. It is 9.30. The confirmation hearing of Judge Roberts will now proceed. Welcome again, Judge Roberts. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. We begin the first round of questioning in order of seniority with 30 minutes allotted to each senator. Uh, Judge Roberts, there are many subjects of enormous importance that you will be asked about in this confirmation hearing, uh, but I start with the central issue which perhaps concerns most Americans, and that is the issue of the woman's right to choose and Roe versus Wade. Uh, and I begin uh, collaterally with the issue of stare decisis and the issue of precedence. Black's Law Dictionary defines stare decisis as let the decision stand, to adhere to precedence and not to unsettle things which are established. Uh, Justice Scalia articulated, quote, the principal purpose of stare decisive is to protect reliance interests and further stability uh, in the law. Uh, Justice Frankfurter articulated the principle, quote, we recognize that stare decisis embodies an important social policy. It represents an element of continuity in law and is rooted in the psychological need to satisfy reasonable expectations. Justice Cardozo, in a similar vein, quote, no judicial system could do society's work if it were, if each issue had to be decided afresh in every case which raised it. In our initial conversation, you talked about uh, stability and humility uh, in the law. Uh, would you agree with uh, those articulations of the principles of stare decisis as you had contemplated them, as you said, you looked for stability in the law? Uh, yes, Mr. Chairman, I would. I, I would point out that the principle goes back uh, even farther than Cardozo and, and Frankfurter. Uh, Hamilton in uh, Federalist Number 78 said that to avoid an arbitrary discretion in the judges, they need to be bound down by rules and precedents. Um, so even that far back, the founders appreciated the role of precedent in promoting uh, even-handedness, predictability, uh, stability, appearance of integrity in the judicial uh, process. Uh, I, I move now to Casey versus Planned Parenthood. 30 minutes may seem like a long time in a second round of 20 minutes, but the time will fly. And I want to get right to the, right to the core of the issue. Uh, in Casey, uh, the key test on following precedents moved to the extent of reliance by the people on the precedent. And the Casey had this to say in a 
rather earthy way. People have ordered their thinking and living around Roe. To eliminate the issue of reliance, one would need to limit cognizable reliance to specific instances of sexual activity. For two decades of economic and social developments, people have organized intimate relationships in reliance on the availability of abortion in the event contraception should fail. That's the joint opinion, rather earthy in its context. Would you agree with that? Well, Senator, the importance of settled expectations in the application of stare decisis is a very important consideration. That was emphasized in the Casey opinion, uh, but also in other opinions outside uh, that area of the law. Uh, the principles of stare decisis look at a number of factors, settled expectations, one of them, as you mentioned, um, whether or not particular precedents have proven to be unworkable is, is another consideration on the other side, uh, whether the doctrinal bases of a decision have been eroded by subsequent developments. For example, if you have a case uh, in which there are three precedents that lead and support that result, and in the intervening period, two of them have been overruled, uh, that may be a basis for reconsidering the, the prior precedent. But there's no, there's no doc, doctrinal basis erosion in Roe, is there, uh, Well, I, I feel the need to stay away from a discussion of particular cases. I'm happy to discuss the principles of stare decisis, and the court has developed a series of precedents on precedent, if you will. They have a number of cases talking about how this principle should be applied. And as you emphasized in Casey, they focused on settled expectations. They also looked at the workability and the uh, uh, erosion of precedence. The erosion of precedent, I think, figured more prominently in the, in the court's discussion in the Lawrence case, for example. But it is one of the factors that is looked at on the other side of the, uh, uh, the balance. Well, do you see any erosion of precedent as to Roe? Well, again, I think I should stay away from discussions of particular issues that are likely to come before the court again. And in the area of abortion, uh, there are cases on the court's docket, of course. It is an issue that does come before the court. So while I'm happy to talk about stare decisis and uh, the importance of precedent, um, I don't think I should get into the application of those principles in a particular area. Well, Judge Roberts, I don't know that we're dealing with any specific issue. If uh when you mention, and you brought the term up, the uh, erosion of precedent, whether you see that as a factor in the application of stare decisis or expectations. Uh, for example, on the citation I quoted from Casey versus Planned Parenthood. Well, in, in the particular case of Roe, obviously you had the Casey decision in 1992 or 93. 92. 92, uh, in which they went through the various factors on stare decisis and reaffirmed the, the central holding in Roe while revisiting the trimester framework and the um, substituting the undue burden analysis for strict scrutiny. So as of 92, you had a reaffirmation of the central holding in Roe. That's, that decision, that application, of the principles of stare decisis is, of course, itself a precedent that would be entitled to respect under those principles. Uh, the joint opinion then goes on after the statement as to sexual activity uh, to come to the core issue about women being able to 
plan their lives, quote, the joint opinion says, the ability of women to participate equally in the economic and social life of the nation has been facilitated by their ability to control their reproductive lives. Uh, do you agree with that statement, uh, Judge Roberts? Well, yes, Senator, as a general proposition, but I do feel compelled to point out that I should not, based on the precedent of prior nominees, uh, agree or disagree with particular decisions, um, and uh, I'm reluctant to do that. That's one of the areas where I think the prior nominees have drawn the line when it comes to do you agree with this case or do you agree with that case, and uh, that's, that's uh, something that I'm going to have to draw the line in the same well, way. I'm not uh, going to ask you whether you're going to vote to overrule or, or sustain it, but we're talking here about uh, uh, the jurisprudence of the court uh, and their reasoning. Let me come to uh, another key uh, phase of uh, Casey, where the joint opinion says a, quote, terrible price would be paid for overruling Roe. It would seriously weaken the court's capacity to exercise the judicial power and to function as the Supreme Court of the nation dedicated to the rule of law. Now, this moves, this moves away from, uh, from uh, the specific holding and goes to a much broader jurisprudential uh, point, uh, really raising the issue of whether there would be uh, uh, a recognition of the court's authority, and in a similar line, uh, the court uh, said this, that to overrule Roe would be, quote, a surrender to political pressure, and added, quote, to overrule under fire would subvert the court's legitimacy, close quote. So in, the, in these statements on, on Casey, you're really going beyond the holding, you're going to the legitimacy and authority uh, of the court. Uh, do you agree with that? Well, I do think the considerations about uh, the court's legitimacy uh, are critically important. Uh, in other cases, um, I'm thinking of um, Payne versus Tennessee, for example, uh, the court has focused on extensive disagreement as a grounds in favor of reconsideration. In Casey, uh, the court looked at the uh, disagreement as a factor in favor of reaffirming uh, the decision. So it's a factor that is played different ways in different precedents of the court. Um, I do think that it is a jolt to the legal system when you overrule a precedent. Uh, precedent plays an important role in promoting stability and even-handedness. It is not enough and the court has emphasized this on several occasions. It is not enough that you may think the prior decision was wrongly decided. Uh, that really doesn't answer the question, it just poses the question. And you do look at these other factors, like settled expectations, like the legitimacy of the court, uh, like whether a particular precedent is workable or not, uh, whether a precedent has been eroded by subsequent developments, all of those factors go into the determination of whether to revisit a precedent under the principles of stare decisis. A jolt to the legal system, a movement against stability. One of the Roberts doctrines. If, if a if a a overruling of a prior precedent is a jolt to the legal system, it is inconsistent with principles of stability. One, go ahead. I was just going to say the principles of stare decisis recognize that there are situations when that's a price that has to be paid. Obviously, Brown versus Board of Education is a leading example. Overruling 
Plessy versus Ferguson, the uh, West Coast Hotel case overruling the Lochner era uh, decisions. Um, those, those were, uh, to a certain extent, jolts to the legal system, and the arguments against them had a lot to do with stability and predictability. But the other arguments, that intervening precedents had eroded the authority of those cases, uh, that those precedents that, they were, that were overruled had proved unworkable, uh, carried the day in those cases. One final citation from the joint opinion in Roe, quote, after nearly 20 years of litigation in Roe's wake, we are satisfied that the immediate question is not the soundness of Roe's resolution of the issue, but the precedential force that must be accorded uh, to its holding. Uh, do you think uh, the court, the joint opinion is correct in elevating precedential force even above the specific holding of the case? That is the general approach when you're considering stare decisis. It's the, the notion that um, it's not enough that you might think that the precedent is flawed, that there are other considerations that enter into the calculus uh, that have to be taken into account. Um, uh, the values of respect for precedent, even-handedness, predictability, stability, the considerations on the other side, whether a precedent you think may be flawed is workable or not workable, whether it's been eroded. Uh, so to the extent that the statement is making the basic point that it's not enough that you might think the precedent is flawed to justify revisiting it, I do agree with that. When you and I met uh, on our first uh, so-called courtesy call, I discussed with you the concept of a super stare decisis. And this was a phrase used by Circuit Judge Luttig in Richmond Medical Center versus Governor Gilmore in the year 2000 when he refers to uh, Casey being a super stare decisive decision with respect to the fundamental right to choose. And a number of the academics, uh, Professor Farber has talked about the super stare decisis and Professor Eskridge has as it applies to uh, uh, statutory lines. Uh, do you think uh, that the cases which have followed uh, Roe fall into the category of a superstar decisis designation? Well, it's a, it's a term that hasn't found its way into the Supreme Court opinions uh, yet. Uh, well, there's, I a, think, there's an opportunity for that. I think um, one way to look at it is that the, the Casey decision itself which applied the principles of stare decisis to Roe versus Wade is itself a precedent of the court entitled to respect under principles of stare decisis. And that would be the body of law that any judge confronting an issue in this area would begin with. Not simply the decision in Roe v. Wade, but its reaffirmation in the Casey decision. Those, that is itself a precedent. It's a precedent on whether or not to revisit the Roe v. Wade precedent, and uh, under principles of stare decisis, that would be where any judge considering an issue in this area would begin. When uh, you and I talked uh, informally, uh, I asked you if you had any thought as to how many opportunities there were in the intervening 32 years for Roe to be overruled, and you said you uh, didn't really know, and you cited a number, and I said, would it surprise you to know that there have been 38 occasions where Roe has been taken up, not with a specific issue raised, but all with an opportunity for Roe to be overruled. 
One of them was Russ versus Sullivan, where he participated in the writing of the brief, and although uh, the case uh, did not squarely raise the overruling of Roe, uh, it involved the uh, issue of whether Planned Parenthood uh, units funded with federal money could uh, counsel on, a, on abortion. And in that brief, you again raised the question about uh, 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 Roe being, being wrongly decided. And then I pointed out to you that there had been some 38 cases where uh, the court had taken up Roe. And I'm uh, a very seldom user of charts, but on this one I, I prepared a chart uh, because it speaks uh, a little, little Little, little too heavy to lift, but it speaks uh, it speaks louder than just uh, thank you, Senator Grassback. Uh, Thirty-eight cases where uh, Roe has been has been taken up, and uh, uh, I don't want to coin any phrases on super precedents. We'll leave that to the Supreme Court, but. Uh, 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 would you think that uh, Roe might be a super duper precedent in light of in light of 38 occasions to uh, overrule it? Well, the interesting thing, of course, is the uh, not simply the opportunity to address it, but when the court uh, actually considers the question, and that, of course, is in the in the Casey decision, where it did apply the principles of stare decisis and specifically addressed it, and. Uh, that, I think, is the decision that any judge in, the, in this area would begin with. Uh, judge Roberts, in uh, your confirmation hearing for Circuit Court, uh, your testimony read to this effect, and it's been widely quoted, uh, Roe uh, is the settled uh, law of the land. Uh, uh, do you mean settled for you, settled only for your capacity as a circuit judge, or settled beyond that? Well, beyond that, it's settled as a precedent of the court, uh, entitled to respect under principles of stare decisis. And those principles applied in the Casey case uh, uh, explain when cases should be revisited and when they should not, and uh, it is it is settled as a precedent of the court. Yes. He went on then to say, "quote It's a little more than settled. It was reaffirmed in the face of a challenge that it should be overruled in the Casey decision. Uh, so it has uh, it has that added precedential value." I think the initial question, uh, the judge confronting an issue in this area, you don't go straight to the Roe decision. You begin with Casey, which modified the Roe framework and reaffirmed its central holding. And you uh, went on to say, accordingly, it is a settled law of the land, using the term settled again. Then your final statement as to this quotation, uh, there is nothing in my personal views that would prevent me from fully and faithfully applying the precedent as well as Casey. Uh, there, there had been a question raised about, about your personal views, and let me digress from Roe for just a moment because I think this touches on an issue which uh, 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 ought to be settled. Uh, 
when you talk about your personal views and as they may uh, relate to your own uh, faith, uh, would you say that your views are the same as those expressed by uh, John Kennedy when he was a candidate uh, and he spoke to the Greater Houston Ministerial Association in September of 1960, quote, I do not speak for my church on public matters and the church does not speak for me, close quote. I agree with that, Senator, yes. And did you have that in mind when you said there's nothing in my personal views that would prevent me from fully and faithfully applying the precedent as well as Casey? Well, I think people's personal views on this issue derive from a number of, of sources, and there's nothing in my personal views based on faith or other uh, sources uh, that would prevent me from applying the precedence of the court faithfully under principles of stare decisis. Uh, Judge Roberts, the uh, change in positions uh, uh, have been uh, have been frequently noted. Uh, early on, uh, in one of your uh, memoranda, you had uh, uh, made a comment on the uh, so-called right to privacy. Uh, this was a 1981 memo to Attorney General Smith. December 11th, 1981, uh, and you were referring to a lecture which Solicitor General Griswold had given six years earlier, and you wrote, quote, that uh, Solicitor General Griswold devotes a section to the so-called right to privacy, acquiring, as we have that such an amorphous arguing, as we have, that such an amorphous right is not to be found in the Constitution. Uh, do you believe that the right to privacy, do you believe today that the right to privacy does exist in the Constitution? Senator, I do. The right to privacy is protected under the Constitution in various ways. Um, it's protected by the Fourth Amendment, which provides that the right of uh, uh, people to be secure in their persons, houses, effects, and papers uh, is, is protected. Uh, it's protected under the First Amendment, dealing with prohibition on establishment of a religion and guarantee of free exercise. It protects privacy in matters of conscience. It was uh, protected uh, by the framers in areas that were of particular concern to them that may not seem so significant today. The Third Amendment, uh, protecting their homes against the quartering of troops. Um, and in addition, the court has, over a, seri with a series of decisions uh, going back uh, 80 years, has recognized that uh, personal privacy is a component of the liberty protected by the Due Process Clause. Uh, the court has explained that the liberty protected is not limited to freedom from physical restraint, and that it's protected not simply procedurally, but uh, as a substantive matter as well. Um, and those decisions have uh, sketched out over a period of 80 years uh, certain aspects of privacy that are protected uh, as part of the liberty in the due process clause under the Constitution. So that the views that you expressed back in 1981 
raising an issue about amorphous and so-called would not be the views you'd express today. Uh, those views reflected uh, the dean's speech. Uh, if you read his speech, he's quite skeptical of that right. Uh, I knew the attorney general was, um, and I was transmitting the dean's speech to the attorney general. But uh, uh, my views today are as I've just stated them. Okay, so they weren't necessarily your views then, but they certainly aren't your views now. I think that's fair, yes. Uh, with respect to uh, going back again to the uh, import of, uh, of Roe and the passage of time, uh, Supreme Court uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist uh, changed his views on Miranda in the 1974 case, Michigan versus Tucker, which I'm sure you're familiar with. He uh, did not apply Miranda without going into the technical reasons there. But the issue came back to the court in U.S. versus Dickerson in the year 2000, and the Chief Justice uh, decided that Miranda should be upheld, and he used uh, this uh, language that it became, quote, so, quote, embedded in routine police practice to the point where the warnings have become a part of our national culture, close quote. Do you think that that... Uh, kind of a principle would be applicable to uh, a woman's right to choose as embodied in Roe versus Wade? Well, I think that those are some of the considerations the court applied in Casey uh, when it applied stare decisis uh, to Roe. Um, and those were certainly the considerations that the Chief Justice focused on in Dickerson. I doubt that his views of the underlying correctness of uh, Miranda uh, had changed, uh, but it was a different question in Dickerson. It wasn't whether Miranda was right, it was whether Miranda should be overruled uh, at this stage. And uh, the chief applied and addressed that separate question, distinct from the, 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 any of the, his views on whether Miranda was correct or not when deciding. And that's the approach the court follows under principles of stare decisis. Well, that's the analogy I'm looking for in Roe versus Wade. Uh, might disagree with it at the time it was decided, uh, but then his language is very powerful uh, when he talks about it becoming, quote, embedded in routine police practices to the point where the warnings have become a part of our national culture. And question by analogy whether a woman's right to choose is so embedded uh, that it's become a part of our national culture. What do, what do you think? Well, I think that gets to the application of the principles in a particular case. And based on my review of the prior transcripts of every nominee sitting on the court today, that's where they've generally declined to answer when it gets to the application of legal principles to particular cases. Uh, I would repeat that the court has already applied the principles of stare decisis to Roe in the Casey decision. And that stands as a precedent of the court as well. So you're not bound to follow it, but it's pretty impressive logic. The, in, in the Casey decision, at, well, I mean... I'm not talking about uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist on, uh, on Miranda. I think in that case, uh, uh, the Chief's explanation of why uh, they weren't going to revisit Miranda um, uh, is it persuaded, I believe, all but one member of the court. Um, 
and I'm sure it had added persuasive effect because of the Chief's prior views on uh, Miranda itself. Uh, it is a recognition uh, of some of the things we've been talking about, the values of stare decisis. Um, I don't think, again, that there's any doubt what the Chief, certainly what he thought, he told us what he thought about Miranda. I doubt that those views have changed, but there are other considerations that come into play when you're asked to revisit a precedent of the court, um, and those are the things we've talked about, and they're laid out again in Dickerson and other cases of the court, Payne versus Tennessee, for example, Agostini, a variety of decisions where the court has explained when it will revisit a precedent and when it will not. Um, and of course, the decisions come out both ways. In Payne versus Tennessee, the court went through the analyses. It was a case about whether victims could testify at sentencing. The precedent said no, and they overruled those. Let me move to two more points before my time is about to expire. Two minutes and 35 seconds. There's a continuing debate on whether the Constitution is a living thing. And as you see, Chief Justice Rehnquist shifted his views on Miranda, suggests that uh, he would agree with uh, Justice John Marshall Harlan's dissent in Poe, where he discusses the constitutional concept of liberty and says, quote, the traditions from which it developed, that tradition is a living thing. Would you uh, agree with that? I agree that the tradition of liberty is a living thing, yes. Um, Let me move uh, uh, in the final two minutes here to your participation pro bono in uh, Romer, where you gave some advice on the arguments to those who were upholding gay rights. And a quotation by Walter Smith, who was the lawyer at Hogan and Hartson in charge of pro bono work. And he had uh, uh, this to say about your participation in that case, supporting or trying to help uh, the gay community in the case in the Supreme Court. Mr. Smith said, quote, every good lawyer knows that if there is something in his client's cause that so personally offends you, morally, religiously, or if it so offends you that you think it would undermine your ability to do your duty as a lawyer, then you shouldn't take it on. And John, referring to you, wouldn't have. So at a minimum, he had no concerns that would rise to that level. Does that uh, uh, accurately express uh, your own sentiments in taking on the aid to the gay community in that case? I was asked uh, frequently by other partners to help out, particularly in my area of expertise, often involved moot courting, um, and I never turned down a request. Um, I think it's right that if there had been uh, something morally objectionable, I suppose I would have, but it was my view that lawyers uh, don't stand in the shoes of their clients um, and that good lawyers uh, can give advice and argue uh, any side of a case. Um, and as I said, I was asked frequently to participate in that type of assistance for other partners at the firm, and I never turned anyone down. Our time just expired. Senator Leahy. <clears throat> well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Morning, Judge. Morning. Look like you survived well yesterday. The, uh, you know, no one doubts you've had a very impressive legal career thus far, and now you've been nominated to be Chief Justice of the United States. Uh, but I have 
concerns that go back over your career, and we've had some discussions of this already about some of the um, themes and in your career, some of the goals you sought to achieve using what is permittable skill. My first uh, area of concern involves a fundamental question of constitutional philosophy, the, the separation of powers. And the last thing our founding fathers wanted was to be ruled by a, a king with absolute power. And the next to the last thing they wanted was to uh, be ruled by a temporary king with absolute powers for four years. So we've got the political system we talked about a great deal yesterday of checks and balances. Each of the three branches of government constrains the other when they overreach. Americans have relied on, on this for our fundamental guarantees of freedom and democracy and open government. And all of us who serve, whether in the executive branch, the judiciary as you do, legislative as we do, uh, take an oath to uphold, very solemn oath, to uphold the Constitution. But there have been times throughout our history when the separation of powers has been strained to its limits by presidents claiming power way beyond what was actually almost imperial powers. So let's, uh, let's focus this down a little bit more on presidential power. Let's go to the president's power as commander-in-chief of the armed forces. Certainly he has that power under the Constitution. I look back to the time when you were a lawyer in the Reagan White House. You objected to a bill that would give certain preferences to veterans who had served in Lebanon between August 20th, 1982 and, quote, the date the operation ends, close quote, and the date would be as either said by presidential proclamation or a concurrent resolution of Congress. And you wrote that the difficulty with such a bill is that it recognizes a role for Congress in terminating the Lebanon operation. And you wrote further, quote, I do not think we would want to concede any definite role for Congress in terminating the Lebanon operation, even by joint resolution presented to the president. And then you explained even parenthetically that even if the president vetoed such a joint resolution, of course, the Congress could override it by a two-thirds majority. I find that troubling. I'll tell you why. Before I read your memo, I, agreed, I thought everybody agreed there'd be only one answer to the question of whether Congress could, um, could stop a war. Your memo suggests that Congress is uh, powerless to stop a president who is going to conduct an unauthorized war. I really find that extremely hard to follow, and I imagine most Americans would. I'll give you a hypothetical. Congress passes a law, and for all U.S. forces to be withdrawn from the territory of a foreign nation by a set date, the president vetoes the law. The Congress overrides that and sets into law, you must uh, withdraw by a certain date. Now, is there any question in your mind that the president would be bound to faithfully execute that law? Well, Senator, I, I don't want to answer a particular hypothetical that could come before the court, but I'm happy to comment on the memorandum that you, you're discussing. Oh, no, 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 wait a minute. That's a hypothetical. I mean, isn't this kind of hornbook law? If the... Uh, uh, 
I don't know if any cases are coming before the court. I mean, this is kind of hornbook. Well, the, the Congress says to the president, you've got to get out uh, and pass a law which is either signed into law by the president or overridden or you override a presidential veto. Why wouldn't the president have to charge as he is under the Constitution to faithfully execute the law? Why wouldn't he have to follow that law? Well, Senator, that issue of, and similar issues have, in fact, come up. There were, for example, lawsuits concerning the legality of the war in Vietnam, uh, various efforts, and certainly the arguments would be made on the other side about the president's authority, and that may well come before the court. Judge, with all due respect, the, uh, the cases in, in Vietnam were not based on a specific um, law passed by Congress to get out. I mean, Congress did cut off the funding. Right. In April 1975, by a one-vote margin in the Armed Services Committee, I know because I was the newest member of the committee at that time, uh, voted to not authorize the war any longer. But are you saying that Congress could not pass a law that we must withdraw forces? No, Senator, I'm not. What I'm saying is that that issue or issues related to that could well come before the court, and that's why I have to resist answering a particular hypothetical question. Uh, the memo you uh, refer to, I was working in the White House Counsel's Office then. The White House Counsel's Office is charged uh, to be vigilant to protect the executive's authority. Just as you have lawyers here in the Senate uh, and the House has lawyers, who are experts in charge with being vigilant to protect the prerogatives of the legislative branch. I believe very strongly in the separation of powers. It was a very important principle that the framers set forth that is very protective of our individual liberty. It makes sure the legislative branch legislates, the executive executes, and the judicial branch decides the law. And it, makes, it was a part of the framers' vision that each of the branches would be, to a certain extent, jealous of what they regarded as their prerogatives. And to the extent there is a dispute between the legislative branch and the executive branch, it's the job, of course, of the judicial branch to resolve that dispute. Uh, but, your, but your position in this memo in President Reagan's office seemed to indicate that Congress has, does not have an ability to end hostilities. With, with respect, Senator, you're vastly overreading the memorandum. Well, tell me why. Well, because it had nothing to do with uh, terminating host uh, hostilities. It had to do with the eligibility for certain pension benefits. Uh, and the question then was whether or not who should be determining when the hostilities ceased or should cease. And there again, uh, a lawyer for the executive branch, not a judge who would be considering the issue in an entirely different light, but a lawyer for the executive branch, a careful lawyer would say, there may be a problem there. If, are we conceding anything by saying the legislature gets to determine when the hostilities end? I, I don't think it's overreading it at all, as you suggest, to say when you write, I do not think we would want to concede any definitive role for Congress in terminating the Lebanon operation even by joint resolution presented to the president. Well, with respect, you're, Senator, you're, you're saying you don't want to concede any ability of the Congress to stop a war. With respect, Senator, the memorandum is about legislation for, if I'm remembering it correctly, it was 20-some years ago, uh, pension uh, benefits or certain additional pay benefits. That's what it was about. 
And um, I suspect if you asked any lawyer for any president of any administration whether they wanted to concede that general principle or if as careful lawyers they would prefer that that provision were rewritten or not in there, I'm fairly confident, regardless of the administration, that a lawyer for the executive would take the same position. Now, I'm also fairly confident that one of your lawyers here in the Senate would take the opposite position. Let me ask you this question. Does Congress have the power to declare war? Of course. The Constitution specifically gives that power to Congress. The, um, does Congress then have the power to stop a war? Congress certainly has the power of the purse, and that's the way, the way as you noted earlier, that Congress has typically yeah, but, exercised. But, but we, we know we did that in the uh, Bolin Amendment and the Reagan administration, as we found out in the sorry chapter of Iran-Contra, uh, went around that, uh, violated the law, worked with Iran, sold uh, uh, arms illegally to Iran. I think that's one of our, uh, the axis of evil today. And uh, to continue the war, uh, the Contra War in Central America. So the power of the purse, uh, we, we've cut off money. The war sometimes keep going. Do we have the power to terminate war? We have the power to declare war. Do we have the power to terminate war? Senator, that's a question that I don't think can be answered in the abstract. You need to know the particular circumstances and exactly what the facts are and what the legislation would, would be like. Because the argument on the other side, and as a judge, I would obviously be in a position of considering both arguments, the argument for the legislature and the argument for the executive. The argument on the executive side will rely on authority as commander-in-chief and uh, whatever authorities derive from that. Uh, so it's not something that can be answered in the abstract. As you said, uh, uh, your answer is that you were just talking about uh, the question of veterans' Uh, uh, benefits and all after this, I would note that the memo you wrote wasn't entitled Better Veterans Benefits, it was entitled War Powers Problem. Uh, I, I don't think I overstate it. Now, let me ask you another question. We spoke about this again this morning, and I had told you when we met, in fact, I gave you a copy of the Bybee memo. So this would not be a surprise to you. Uh, the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel issued a secret opinion in August 2002, which argued the president enjoys, quote, complete authority over the conduct of war, close quote, end quote. The Congress lacks authority to set the terms and conditions under which the president may exercise his authority as commander-in-chief to control the conduct of operations during war, close quote. And then uh, it took the argument to the extreme when it concluded the president, when acting as commander-in-chief, was not bound, was not bound by the federal law banning the use of torture. In other words, the president would be above the law in that regard. Uh, you did not write that memo, I hasten to add, but you've seen it. And I asked Attorney General Gonzalez for his view of this memo, in particular this uh, sweeping assertion of executive power which puts the president above the law. He... Um, never gave an answer on that, and that's one of the reasons why many had voted against his confirmation. So now let me ask you this. Do you believe that the president has a commander-in-chief override to authorize or excuse the use of torture and interrogation of enemy prisoners 
even though there may be domestic and international laws prohibiting the specific practice. Senator, I believe that no one is above the law under our, under our system, and that includes the President. The President is fully bound by the law, uh, the Constitution, and statutes. Now, there often, arises, there often arise issues where there's a conflict between the legislature and the executive over an exercise of executive authority, asserted executive authority. Um, the framework for analyzing that is in the Youngstown uh, sheet and tube case. Uh, the famous case coming out of President Truman's uh, seizure of the, the steel mills. Now, the Supreme Court held that unconstitutional. Exactly. And the framework that was set forth in Justice Jackson's concurring opinion, which is the opinion that has sort of set the uh, stage for subsequent cases, uh, analyzes the issue in terms of one of three categories. If the President is acting in an area where Congress is supported, express, expressly supportive of his action, the President's power is at its maximum. If the President is acting in an area such as you uh, postulate under the, uh, the Bybee memo, where the President is acting contrary to congressional authority, uh, what Justice Jackson said is the President's authority is at its lowest ebb. It consists solely of his authority under the Constitution, less whatever authority Congress has. Um, and then, of course, there's the vast middle area where courts often have to struggle because they can't determine whether Congress has supported a particular exercise or not. The uh, uh, Danes and Moore case, for example, is a, is a good example of that. Would you consider, so, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, the, the first issue for a court confronting the question you posed would be whether Congress specifically intended to address the question of the President's exercise of authority uh, or not. Well, well I, yeah, I, I would think if you pass a law saying nobody in our government shall torture. I think that's pretty specific. But, but let me ask you this. Is Youngstown settled law? Would you consider Youngstown settled law? I think the approach in the case is one that has guided the court uh, in this area since 1954, 52, whatever it was. So the reason I ask that, uh, when Bybee wrote this, Mr. Bybee wrote this memo, he never cited Youngstown. I think it was Harold Cole, the dean at the Yale Law School, who said this was a stunning omission. Uh, I don't agree with that. Uh, the president uh, instead went ahead and appointed or nominated Mr. Bybee to a federal judgeship. Well, Youngstown's a very important case in a number of respects, uh, not least uh, the fact that the opinion that everyone looks to, the Jackson opinion, was by Justice Jackson, who was, of course, FDR's Attorney General, and certainly a proponent of uh, expansive executive powers. But he also said he's one of the justices you admire the most. Uh, he is, for, for a number of reasons. And what's significant about that aspect of his career is here's someone whose job it was to promote and defend an expansive view of executive power as Attorney General, which he did very effectively. And then when he went on the court, as you can tell from his decision in Youngstown, uh, he took an entirely different view of a lot of issues. In one famous case, even disagreeing with one of his own prior opinions, um, and wrote a long opinion about how he can't believe he once held those uh, views. I think it's a, a very important. Are you sending us a message? Well, I'm just saying. <laughs> one reason people admire Justice Jackson so much is that, although he had strong views as Attorney General. He recognized when he became a member of the Supreme Court that his job had changed, and he was not the president's lawyer. 
he was not the chief lawyer in the executive branch. He was a justice sitting in, in review of some of the decisions of the executive. And he took a different perspective. And that's, again, one reason many admire him, including myself. Well, the reason I ask, I mean, I, I thought the memo was outrageous. And I, uh, once it became public, not until it became public, but after it became public, the president disavowed it and said to pose the torture. And I commend him for that. Many, many wish it had been uh, the administration had taken that position prior to the press finding out about it. But in the Jackson opinion, and I just pulled it out here, he says, the president has no monopoly of war powers, whatever they are. Well, Congress cannot deprive the president of the command of the Army and Navy. Only Congress can provide him with an Army and Navy to command. Congress is also empowered to make rules for the government and regulation of land and naval forces, by which it may, to some unknown extent, impinge upon even command functions. Do you agree that Congress can make rules that may impinge upon the president's command functions? Certainly, Senator. Uh, and the, the point that Justice Jackson is making there is that uh, the Constitution vests pertinent authority in these areas in both branches. The president is the commander-in-chief, um, and that meant something to the founders. On the other hand, as you just quoted, uh, Congress has the authority to issue regulations governing the armed uh, forces, another express provision in the Constitution. Those two can conflict. Uh, if, if by regulating, uh, making regulations for the armed forces, Congress does something that interferes with, in the President's view, his command authority. And in some cases, those disputes will be resolved in court, as they were in the, uh, the Youngstown case. And um, in his book, All the Laws But One, Chief Justice Rehnquist, late Chief Justice, concluded with this sentence, the laws will not be silent in time of war, but to speak with a somewhat different voice. He offers that somewhat different voice, of course, the uh, Supreme Court decision, an infamous decision, horrible decision, my estimation, Kermatsu. As we know, in that case, the court upheld the internment of Japanese Americans in detention camps, not because of anything they'd done, not because of any evidence that they were at all disloyal, to the United States, but solely based on their race, as sometimes this country has legislated very, very cruelly and very wrongly solely on the question of race. Now, the Korematsu's failure, majority's failure to uphold the Bill of Rights, I believe is one of the greatest failures in the court's history. Now, we can't Court, I don't believe to have a Supreme Court that would continue the failings of Korematsu, especially when we're engaged on a, a war on terror that could last throughout our lifetime, probably will. We'll always face, uh, we'll always, uh, this country, all the Western world, all democracies will face terrorist attacks, whether internal, as we had in Oklahoma City, or external, in 9-11. Uh, I just want to make sure you're not going to be a Korematsu justice. I have a couple questions. Can I assume that you would hold the internment of all residents of this country who in turn, just because they have a particular nationality or ethnic or religious group, you would hold that to be unconstitutional? The internment of a group solely on the basis of their nationality or ethnic or religious group? 
I suppose a case like that could come before the court. I would be surprised uh, uh, to see it, and I would be surprised if there were any arguments that could support it. Let me ask you this. Do you feel that you'd be able to interpret the Bill of Rights the same, whether we're in wartime or not? I do, Senator. Um, I, I read the Chief's book that you quoted from. Um, and uh, for someone who sits on the court that I sit on now, uh, we uh, famously look back to one of the first cases decided in the D.C. Circuit. Uh, it was the Aaron Burr trial. Um, and it's, if anything, the motto. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's sort of the motto of our court, an opinion that was written out of that, um, in which the judge explained that it was our obligation to calmly poise the scales of justice in dangerous times as well as calm times. That's a paraphrase. Okay. But the, the phrase, calmly poise the scales of justice, is, if anything, the motto of the court on which I now sit. And uh, that would be the guiding principle. Uh, for me, whether I'm back on that court or a different one, because um, some factors may be different, the issues may be different, the demands may be different, but the Bill of Rights remains the same, and the obligation of the court to protect those basic liberties in times of peace and in times of war, in times of stress and in times of calm, uh, that doesn't change. I hope you feel that way. I know in the uh, people who spoke of the First Amendment, it's not there to protect popular speech that's easy unpopular speech, and I, as I mentioned yesterday, our state really wanted to make sure the Bill of Rights was going to be there before we joined the Union. Let me switch gears a bit. In the area of environmental protection, I feel that you've narrowly construed laws in the Constitution in a way to close the courthouse doors to millions of parents who want to protect their children from dangerous air pollution or unsafe drinking water, fish contaminated with mercury, foods covered with pesticides. Um, we all know that often the president, no matter who, it, who is president, local governments don't do enough to protect uh, people in environmental, uh, environmental areas, environmental dangers, and we've given them protection, the Congress has. Without your Ducal Law Journal, which many have commented about in the press and otherwise, but somewhat dismissive, regarding these citizen suits to protect the environment, you wrote that Congress may not ask the courts, in effect, exercise oversight responsibility at the behest of any John Q. public who happens to be interested in the issue. Um, you discount the interest that many citizens in Congress have in preserving our environment. A few years ago, you sound very much like Justice Scalia. Uh, I know a few years ago, the Supreme Court, over the dissent of Justice Scalia, ruled that a citizen living near a stream that had been polluted by many illegal discharges of mercury from an upstream company did have the right to go to court over these illegal uh, mercury discharges. The government was not enforcing the laws. So I ask you this, if people's, if their president or their governor fails to enforce these laws, why shouldn't individuals have access to courts where polluting companies could be made to pay for their wrongdoing? Uh, what, what can you tell us to assure us parents of children who are worried about this from birth defects and all, all of us, what can you do to assure us that they as individuals won't find under a 
Chief Justice Roberts find the courthouse door slammed shut in their face? Well, one thing they could, uh, I would tell them to do is, is read the rest of the Duke Law Journal article uh, because one thing it makes, uh, point it makes is that uh, environmental interests, it goes on to say aesthetic interests, those are all protected under the law and that one reason uh, courts should insist that those who bring suit have standing, that's the issue, that are actually injured, is because standing can encompass certainly environmental harms. Uh, the issue in, that was being addressed in the Duke Law Journal article was whether anyone could bring a lawsuit just because they're interested in the issue or whether the plaintiffs had to show that they had been injured. In other words, in your hypothetical, the people who are downstream from the mercury pollution, they will be able to show that they're injured and can bring suit. The question is whether somebody halfway across the country who's not injured by that act should be able to bring suit. That was the issue in the... But, but you know, I, I read it also in conjunction with your brief that you wrote in 1991 when you were Kenneth Starr's political deputy. It's in Franklin versus Gwinnett County Public Schools. Now, in that case, a girl, Christine Franklin, had been sexually harassed. She had been abused from the time she was in the 10th grade by a teacher and a sports coach. School was aware of the sexual harassment but took no action. Called her, in fact, they even encouraged her not to complain. The Office for Civil Rights, the Department of Education investigated, found their rights were violated under Title IX of our civil rights laws. She had been physically abused. Uh, right to complain about gender discrimination been interfered with, you argued that she had no right to damages for this abuse. Now, your view was rejected by the Supreme Court. Uh, Justice White, an opinion joined by Justice O'Connor and others, wrote that you fundamentally misunderstood the long history of the court's role in providing appropriate remedy for such, um, uh, for such abuse and that you'd invited them to abdicate their historical judicial authority to award appropriate relief. So do you now personally agree with and accept as binding law the reasoning of Justice White's opinion, Franklin? Well, it certainly is a precedent of the court that I would apply under principles of, of stare decisis. Um, the government's position in that case, of course, in no way condoned the activities involved. Um, the issue was an open one. Uh, the courts of appeals had ruled the same way that the government uh, had argued uh, before the Supreme Court. Um, and it arose because we were dealing with an implied right of action. In other words, a right of action under the statute that courts had implied. The reason that there was difficulty in determining exactly what remedies were available is because Congress had not addressed that question. Um, the remedies that were available, as we explained, included issues such as restitution, back pay, injunctive relief. And the open issue, again, was whether damages were, were available. The Supreme Court uh, issued its, its uh, ruling and cleared that up. But here in a case, I mean, it's a pretty egregious case. You have, uh, and, and I'm sure that you didn't, you in no way condone what happened to this young girl, but I mean, it was awful. Uh, she'd be taken out of class uh, by this teacher, brought to another room, uh, basically raped. And Justice White made it very clear, contrary to what you and Kenneth Starr had said, that she had a right for actions uh, because of that abuse. Now, do you feel that they were acting 
even though it went different than what you'd argued, do you feel the court's opinion is based on sound reasoning? Well, I don't do you think it's a solid precedent. It is a solid precedent. It's a precedent of the court. Uh, it was a, as you say, a unanimous precedent. It concerned an issue of statutory interpretation uh, because it was unclear whether Congress had intended a particular remedy to be available or not. Um, that was the question before the court. The Court of Appeals had ruled one way. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled the other way. The administration's position was based on uh, the principle that the decision about the remedy of back pay was a decision that should be made by Congress and not the court. Uh, the court uh, saw the case the other way. Um, and that issue is now settled. Uh, and those damages actions are, are brought uh, in courts uh, around the country. But I wonder if we're balancing angels on the head of the pin. What kind of back pay was this teenage student going to be seeking? What kind of, uh, no, there, there what, what, what kind of injunction is she going to do after she graduated? Would she seek that kind of injunction? I mean, I, you know, as a parent, and you're a parent, I mean, I, I just wonder, are we saying that we'll put up a, a block for uh, people who have really justiciable reasons to be in court? No, Senator, uh, again, there was no issue in the case about condoning the behavior. I found it abhorrent then, I find it abhorrent now. That's not the issue. The issue in the case is did Congress intend for this particular remedy to be available? Other remedies were available under, under the provision at issue, and the question is, was this remedy available? A back pay. Uh, rest, restitution, an injunction to prohibit the harmful activity. Um, again, the issue arose because Congress had not spelled out whether there was a right of action in the first place or what the components of that right of action should be. We'll go, back, we'll go back to this in my next round, I, I can assure you. My time is up. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much, Senator Leahy. Senator Hatch? Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'm happy to uh, be here, and I appreciate your leadership, you and Senator Leahy, on this committee. We welcome you again, uh, Judge Roberts, and uh, appreciate you. you. Now, I read an interesting book over the weekend, uh, Cass Sunstein's book, on uh, a recent book uh, published by Basic Books. Uh, now, he discussed various... Uh, philosophies with regard to uh, judging, uh, and I'd just like to ask you this question. Uh, some of the philosophies he discussed were uh, whether a judge should be an originalist, a uh, strict constructionist, a fundamentalist, a perfectionist, a, a, uh, a, a majoritarian, or a minimalist. Which of those categories do you fit in? I haven't, uh, didn't have a chance to read Professor Sunstein's book. He he writes a different one every week. It's hard to keep up with. <laughs> uh, but, um, uh, you know, I think... Uh, I've read a number of them. <laughs> uh, like most people, I resist, uh, resist the labels. Um, I have told people when pressed that I prefer to be known uh, as a modest judge. And uh, to me, that means some of the things that you talked about with those other labels. It means an appreciation that the role of the judge is limited. Uh, that judge uh, is to decide the cases before them. They're not to legislate. They're not to execute the laws. Uh, another part of that humility has to do with respect for precedent that forms part of the rule of law that the judge is obligated to apply under principles of stare decisis. Part of that modesty has to do with being open to the considered views of your colleagues on the bench. Um, I would say that's one of the things I've learned the most in the past uh, two years on the Court of Appeals, um, how valuable it is to function 
in a collegial way uh, with your colleagues on the bench. Uh, other judges being open to your views, you being open to theirs. They, after all, are in the same position you're in. They've read the same briefs. They've heard the same arguments. They've looked at the same cases. And if they're seeing things in a very different way, you need to be open to that and try to take another look at your view and make sure that you're uh, on, on solid ground. Um, uh, now, I think that general approach uh, results in a modest approach to judging, which is good for the legal system as a whole. Um, I don't think uh, the courts should have a dominant role in society and stressing society's problems. Uh, it is their job to say what the law is. That's what Chief Justice Marshall said, of course, in Marbury versus Madison. And yes, there will be times when either the executive branch or the legislative branch exceeds the limits of their powers under the Constitution or transgresses one of the provisions of the Bill of Rights, and then it is emphatically the obligation of the courts to step up uh, and say what the Constitution provides and to strike down either unconstitutional legislation or unconstitutional executive action. Um, but uh, the court has to appreciate that the reason they have that authority is because they're interpreting the law. They're not making policy. And to the extent they go beyond their confined limits and make policy or execute the law, they lose their legitimacy. Um, and I think that calls into question the authority they will need when it's necessary to act in the face of uh, unconstitutional action. Now, I know that I've only mentioned a few of these so-called uh, descriptions of various uh, philosophical attitudes with regard to judging. But if I'm, in, am I correct in interpreting that you're probably eclectic, that you would take the whatever is the correct way of uh, judging out of each one of those uh, provisions? There may be uh, truths in each uh, one of those provisions, and uh, that none of them uh, absolutely uh, uh, creates an absolute uh, way of judging. Well, I have said I do not have an overarching judicial philosophy that I bring to every case, and I think that's true. I tend to look at the cases from the bottom up rather than the top down. Um, and uh, like I think all good judges uh, focus uh, a lot on the facts. We talk about uh, the law, and that's a great interest for all of us, but I think most cases turn on the facts. Um, so you do have to know those. You have to know the record. Um, in terms of the application of the law, you begin obviously with the precedents before you. Um, there are some cases where uh, everybody is going to be a literalist. Uh, if the phrase in the Constitution says two-thirds two of the Senate, uh, everybody's a literalist when they interpret that. Other phrases in the Constitution are broader, uh, unreasonable searches and seizures. Uh, you can look at that wording all day and it's not going to give you much uh, progress in deciding whether a particular search is reasonable or not. You have to begin looking at the cases and the precedents, what the framers had in mind when they drafted that provision. So, yes, it does depend upon the nature of the case before you, I think. Well, thank you. On the War Powers Act, I remember when Senator Heflin uh, years ago uh, in the Breyer hearing uh, said, uh, you of course have been here at various times. Do you have any particular thoughts concerning the authority and what ought to be done relative to this, or do you have feelings that the War Powers Act is a proper approach to this issue? Judge Breyer's simple answer was, I do not have special thoughts that I would think would be particularly enlightening in that area. He didn't, didn't, did not get drawn into to, uh, interpreting the, the War Powers Act uh, for the committee, and I, I suspect that that's the way you feel as well. Now, my friend the chairman held up a chart 
with a number of cases that he said uh, relied on Roe versus Wade. In fact, uh, if I heard him correctly, he called Ray a super-duper president. Now, I'm not sure that a super-duper president exists between you and me, but uh, some have said that Planned Parenthood v. Casey, a uh, very important case, uh, reaffirmed Roe. But I am, uh, uh, but let me just ask you, am I correct that Casey reaffirmed the central holding in Roe that substantially changed its framework? Uh, that's what the, the joint opinion of the three justices said. It was reaffirming the central holding. It revisited and altered the framework. It, well, there were only a few votes to simply reaffirm Roe, weren't there, on, in the Casey case? Well, the, the plurality opinion um, uh, was, is regarded, I think, as the opinion of, of it's the opinion of the plurality, but as the leading opinion of the justices of the majority, it's the one the judges look to in the first instance. The, there were separate opinions that disagreed with some of the ways in which uh, that plurality revisited Roe. Um, it, it reaffirmed the central holding in Roe v. Wade. It uh, dispensed with the, the trimester framework, um, and it substituted for the strict scrutiny that Roe had established the undue burden analysis uh, that hence, since the time of Casey has governed in this area. Well, uh, as I recall it, there were only a few votes, as you've mentioned, uh, to simply reaffirm Roe, but does, does this suggest that Casey itself noted the troubling features of Roe and indicated that Roe's framework has not been workable? Well, the, the question of the workability of, of uh, the framework is, I think, one of the main considerations that uh, you look to under principles of stare decisis, along with the settled expectations, whether a precedent has been uh, eroded. Um, that was one of the factors that the court looked at uh, in Casey in determining, I think, to alter the uh, framework uh, of Roe, the trimester framework and the strict scrutiny approach, uh, at least in the terms that were applied by the, uh, the joint opinion. Our chairman uh, <coughs> asked if the former Chief Justice Rehnquist's opinion in the Dickerson case upholding Miranda would apply to Roe versus Wade. And if I recall correctly, uh, uh, you properly declined to answer. But am I right that uh, our Chief Justice Rehnquist repeatedly believed that Roe should be overruled? That, that was his view, yes. And doesn't that mean that Rehnquist himself did not believe that his Dickerson holdings should apply to Roe? Uh, Would that be a fair conclusion? Well, based on his published opinions. Now, I don't remember, well, I get, certainly he wrote in Casey. Um, I don't know if he's written since then, so I, I just hesitate to ascribe views from 1992 sure. to current. Okay. Now, the chairman uh, and uh, ranking uh, member have raised some important issues, and I may uh, turn to some of them shortly, but, uh, I, but I believe, however, that we should start with first principles before exploring how those principles should be uh, applied. Uh, many activist groups and some of my Senate colleagues would like nothing more than that you take a series of litmus tests, that you reveal your positions on issues and tell us where, uh, where you stand. I've been on this committee uh, during the hearings on nine Supreme Court nominations. I voted to confirm all of the nominees, Democrats and Republicans. Uh, as I, I described yesterday, I agree that this committee needs answers, but only to proper questions. The important question is not what your views are on any particular issue. You, you are not campaigning for elective office. 
The question that needs to be answered is how you view the role of unelected judges in a representative democracy. And I know you've said you, you do not uh, have what uh, might be described as a carefully calibrated, highly defined judicial philosophy. But as each individual case comes before you with its own unique facts and, and issues, uh, yesterday you gave us your commitment that you will approach that case within a certain framework. Now, I'm more interested in learning more about that framework, that perspective and what you believe your job as a judge really is than I am in, in how uh, you specifically implement the, that framework in specific cases or individual cases. Now, this is where I do differ with some of my colleagues. I want, uh, I want to know more about how you get or how you intend to get to a conclusion while some appear to only want to know what the conclusion will be, like on issues uh, such as abortion. Uh, some think that uh, judges exist to defend and promote progress, preserving the gains of the past and bringing us to a better future uh, uh, of equality and justice. Uh, now, that does not sound, uh, uh, to use a word you've uh, used to describe judges, uh, very modest to me. Uh, on the other hand, Senator DeWine noted Justice Byron White, appointed by President Kennedy, said the judges decide cases. And I thought that was an important quote yesterday. Yesterday he used the analogy of an umpire who calls balls and strikes but neither pitches or bets. Uh, please help the committee sort this out by describing further the role you believe unelected judges play or should play in our system of government. Are they uh, charged, for example, with using the Constitution to effect uh, cultural and political reform? Or does the Constitution require that this should be left to the people and their elected representatives? How can the judiciary uh, sit in constitutional judgment over the legislative and executive branches while still remaining co-equal with them? If you could kind of take a crack at those uh, various questions, I'd appreciate it. Well, uh, Justice White's insight uh, was quoted by Senator DeWine yesterday that judges' obligation is to decide cases. Uh, really has constitutional significance. It goes back to Marbury versus Madison. You know, the Constitution doesn't have any provision that says, oh, and the judges, by the way, are to interpret the Constitution and tell us what it means. What it says is that the judges are to decide cases that arise under this Constitution, this new Constitution, and under any new laws that the Congress might pass. And what Chief Justice Marshall explained in Marbury versus Madison was that, well, if we've got to decide cases, that's our constitutional obligation, we've got to decide whether in a particular case something's consistent with the Constitution or not. So we have to decide what the Constitution means, and that's what the framers intended. So the obligation to decide cases is the only basis for the authority to interpret the Constitution and laws. That means that judges should be careful in making sure that they have a real case in front of them a real live dispute between parties who have actual injury involved, uh, actual uh, interests at stake, um, because that is the basis for their legitimacy. And then they're to decide that case as a judge would, not as a legislator would based on any view of what's the best policy, um, but as a judge would based on the law. Um, that's why the framers were willing to have the judges decide cases that required them to interpret the Constitution because they were going to decide, decide it according to the rule of law. 
The people who framed our Constitution were jealous of their freedom and liberty. They would not have sat around and said, let's take all the hard issues and give them over to the judges. Uh, that would have been the furthest thing from their mind. Now, judges have to decide hard questions when they come up in the context of a particular case. That's their obligation. But they have to decide those questions according to the rule of law, not their own social preferences, not their policy views, uh, not their personal preferences, according to the rule of law. Uh, you've explained that it's not the duty of the judiciary to make the law or to execute it, but to interpret it. Uh, I'm not naive. Sometimes interpretation is more of an art than a science. There are those who would label interpretation absolutely anything a judge might do or to the text of a statute or a constitution. But it seems to me there comes a point where a judge is using his own creativity and purpose and crosses the line between interpreting a text written by somebody else and, in a sense, creating something new. <laughs> Now, that troubles me since, as I said earlier, I believe in the separation of powers. If a judge crosses the line between interpreting and making the law, he has crossed the line supporting his legitimate authority from the legislative branch's authority. Now, to me, that's a very serious matter uh, if we believe, as Americans, America's founders did, that the separation of powers, not, in, not just in theory or in textbook, but in practice in the actual functioning of government, is the linchpin of limited government uh, and liberty. How do you distinguish between these two roles of interpreting and making law? And can you assure the Senate and the American people uh, that you will stay on your side of this line? I will certainly uh, make every effort to do so, Senator. I appreciate the point that in some cases, the question of whether you're interpreting the law or making a law is that that line is hard to draw in some cases. I would say not in most cases. I think in most cases, most judges know what it means to interpret the law um, and can recognize when they're going too far into an area of making law. But certainly there are, are harder cases. And uh, someone like Justice Harlan always used to explain that when you get to those hard cases, you do need to focus again on the question of legitimacy and make sure that this is the question that you, the judge, are supposed to be deciding rather than someone else. You go to a case like the Lochner case. You can read that opinion today, and it's quite clear that they're not interpreting the law. They're making the law. The judgment is right there. They say, we don't think it's too much for a baker to work whatever it was, 13 hours a day. We think the legislature made a mistake in saying they should regulate this for their health. We don't think it hurts their health at all. That's right there in the opinion. You can look at that and see that they are substituting their judgment on a policy matter for what the legislature had said. Um, uh, so, you know, the fact that it's difficult to draw the line doesn't relieve the judge of an obligation to draw the line. There are those uh, more academic theorists who say, it is a question of degree, and since it's just a question of degree, you shouldn't try to draw the line because it's hard sometimes to interpret the law without making the law. We'll just throw our hands up and say, well, judges make the law and, and proceed from that. Um, that has not been my experience, uh, either as a judge or an advocate. My experience has been in most cases, you can see where the line is, and you do know when judges are exceeding their authority and making the law rather than interpreting it. And careful judges are always vigilant to make sure that they're adhering uh, to their proper function and not uh, going into the legislative area. 
Well, all of your experience has been in the uh, either in the judicial branch from your service as a clerk uh, to then Justice Rehnquist, and from your current role on the D.C. Circuit, or in the executive branch where you worked in the uh, White House Counsel's Office, uh, assistant to the Attorney General and Deputy uh, uh, Solicitor General. In contrast, I would note that uh, Justice Breyer brought to the uh, court his experience as chief counsel to this committee. As many commentators noted during the oral arguments of the sentencing uh, guidelines case, Justice Breyer seemed more than willing uh, to defend congressional prerogatives. Now, what can you tell us to assure the committee that your lack of experience in working in the legislative branch of government might contribute to a uh, lack of deference to federal statutes as you review those federal statutes on the bench? Well, I guess the first thing I would say is look at, uh, begin with my opinions uh, as a judge over the past two years on the Court of Appeals. Um, I think they show a healthy regard for the prerogatives of the legislative branch uh, that is appropriate. Um, uh, it is certainly, as an advocate, I've certainly been uh, arguing deference to the legislature in appropriate cases. Um, other cases, of course, I was on the, a different side and arguing the opposite. So I'm familiar with the arguments. I have not only been in a position where I've been pressing arguments, for example, for the executive branch. I have been arguing cases against the executive branch and frequently arguing cases uh, for the proposition of deference in favor of the legislature. Um, I guess I would just uh, harken back to the model I was talking about earlier, Justice Jackson, who went from being FDR's Attorney General to being a, a justice on the court who I think always had a healthy regard for the prerogatives of the legislative branch. Well, you claimed in your questionnaire the judges do not, quote, have a commission to solve society's problems, unquote. I could not agree more. Uh, but this is an interesting formulation. It is worth uh, remembering, I think, that my office and your office only exist because the American people have authorized them through the Constitution. In other words, the power that you have as a judge comes from the people. Now, that would be a fair assessment, I, I take it. Yes. Okay, let me explore this question of precedent a little bit more with you. Obviously, the Supreme Court decides cases involving a range of issues and requiring application of different kinds of law, including regulations and statutes, uh, uh, as well as the Constitution. All of these cases can set precedents which might be relied upon to decide future cases raising similar issues. Now, what is your understanding of the role that precedent plays in these different categories of cases? Is precedent equally authoritative in, for example, regulatory or statutory cases as in constitutional cases? As I understand it, the Supreme Court has long said that the strength of its prior decisions is related in part to the difficulty in correcting errors. In constitutional cases, uh, there is no external way to correct an error except by constitutional amendment. Now, the Supreme Court says, therefore, that precedent is, uh, is, is weakest in constitutional cases. Now, I have uh, here a list of uh, statements from Supreme Court decisions going back decades and decades to reflect this. In 1997, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor wrote for the court in Agostini v. Felton that you mentioned earlier that stare decisis or precedent is not a command, but a policy. And it is a policy that is, and I'm quoting Justice O'Connor here, quote, at its weakest when we interpret the Constitution, because our interpretation can be altered only by constitutional amendment or by overruling our prior decisions, unquote. In 1944, Justice Reed wrote for the court in Smith v. Allwright, quote, in constitutional questions, 
Where correction depends upon amendment and not upon legislative action, this court throughout its history has freely exercised its power to re-examine the basis of its constitutional decisions, unquote. Now, Mr. Chairman, I'd like to place this list in the record, if I can, at this point. Without objection, so ordered. Now, the bottom line is that precedent is weakest in constitutional cases. Does this distinction make sense to you, uh, Judge Roberts? And has it, in fact, resulted in the Supreme Court overruling its previous interpretations of the Constitution with any frequency? The, the court has frequently explained that um, stare decisis is, is strongest when you're dealing with a statutory decision. The theory is a very straightforward one that if the court gets it wrong, Congress can fix it. Um, and uh, the Constitution, the court has explained, is different. Obviously, uh, short of amendment, only the court can, uh, can, can fix the constitutional precedents. Do you believe uh, that Congress is just as bound by constitutional limits of state legislatures? There are, there are different limits, of course, but yes, the limits in the Constitution on Congress um, are as important as limitations on, on state legislatures in the Constitution. Well, I ask that question uh, because some seem to argue that overturning a statute that we pass here in the national legislature is almost presumptively an example of judicial activism. Uh, and I, I have disagreed with the court on some of these statutes. The Morrison case is a perfect illustration to them, along with Senator Biden, the author of the Violence Against Women Act. And I felt that they overreached in that particular case. But in any event, uh, some believe that uh, it's judicial activism, while turning a blind eye to the much more common practice of striking down state legislation, is just an afterthought. Now, this argument gets even more complicated when the Supreme Court uses a provision actually in the Constitution to strike down a congressional statute, uh, but uh, uh, provisions not in the Constitution uh, uh, to strike down state, state statutes. Uh, America's founders were clear that the Constitution established a federal government of few and defined powers. It cannot regulate any act activity it chooses, but may only regulate in those areas which the Constitution grants it power to regulate. Now, one familiar area is found in Article 1, Section 8, which gives the Congress the power to regulate, quote, to regulate commerce among the various states, unquote. Now, don't get me wrong. I do not necessarily agree with the Supreme Court, as I mentioned in the Morrison case. I don't think they always get it right when saying that Congress has overstepped its bounds with respect to regulating interstate commerce. At the same time, some have warned that we are sliding into a constitutional abyss because the court has found just twice in more than 60 years that there is something, anything, that it says the Constitution does not allow Congress to do. Now, could you comment on the Supreme Court's duty to exercise judicial review re regarding Congress and state legislatures and their enactments? Well, the, the obligation to say what the law is, including determining that particular legislation is unconstitutional, uh, is, as Chief Justice Marshall said, emphatically the duty and province of the judicial branch. Um, uh, you, you and I can agree or disagree on whether the court is right in a particular case. But if the court strikes down an act of Congress uh, and it's wrong, the court shouldn't have done that, um, that's not an act of judicial activism, it's just being wrong. Uh, the obligation to strike down legislation um, is with the judicial branch. Uh, 
They need, I think, as Justice Holmes said, it's the gravest and most delicate duty that the court performs. And the reason is obvious. All judges are acutely aware of the fact that millions and millions of people have voted for you and not one has voted for any of us. Um, that means that you have the responsibility of representing the policy preferences of the people, making the determination about when legislation is necessary and appropriate, and what form that legislation should take. Uh, our job is a very different one. We have to consider cases that raise the question from time to time whether particular legislation is constitutional. And we have to limit ourselves in doing that to applying the law and not in any way substituting ourselves for the policy choices you've made. Uh, but it is not, uh, as I would say, it's not judicial activism when the courts do that. They may be right or they're wrong, and if they're wrong, they're wrong, but it's not activism. Well, thank you, Judge. You know, our time's almost gone. We've talked about a lot of substantive things in this half hour. I know that the American Bar Association has three times unanimously given you its highest rating of well-qualified. <laughs> Uh, twice for your appeals court uh, appointment and now again for your Supreme Court nomination. We're, now we're going to hear more from the ABA uh, about this later in the week, but I wanted to highlight one thing. The ABA examines three areas, including judicial temperament, and the ABA has laid out the criteria it uses for this. They include such things as compassion, open-mindedness, freedom from bias, and commitment to equal justice. And you've come out with the highest rating on all of those areas. Many people note that you have been at the pinnacle of your profession, one of a handful of Supreme Court specialists and a partner at a very prestigious law firm here in Washington, D.C., and yet you have consistently pursued pro bono work, that is, work for free to help people in need, in which you use your skill and training and legal, legal talent to help others. Perhaps that, that does not fit with the stereotype that some would force upon you, but it is true, uh, uh, and it is real, and it says a lot about you as a person. In the few minutes we have left, please describe some of the pro bono work you have done, why those particular projects are important to you, and what you believe your efforts accomplished. The position that you have been nominated for is Chief Justice of the United States. Do you plan to use that role as a bully pulpit to encourage members of the bar to take uh, seriously their responsibility to undertake pro bono work as you have done throughout your legal career? Uh, yes, Senator. If I am confirmed, I would uh, hope to do that. And if, if I'm not, I would hope to do that back on the Court of Appeals. Um, I think it's a very important part of a lawyer's obligation. Um, I'll mention just a couple of examples. Um, I handled an appeal here before uh, the D.C. Court of Appeals uh, on behalf of a class of welfare recipients who had had their benefits uh, cut off. Uh, our position was in that the benefits had been cut off uh, in violation of the Constitution, violation of their due process rights to notice in an individualized uh, hearing. These were the uh, neediest people in the district, um, and uh, we pressed their argument uh, before the Court of Appeals. Um, the first case I argued in the Supreme Court was a pro bono matter uh, for an individual with a double jeopardy claim. Uh, against the United States. Um, again, someone who didn't have a lawyer, um, and I was very happy to do, do that. Um, and as I said earlier, I regularly uh, handled uh, moot courts for people. I um, did one for minority plaintiffs in a voting rights case out of Louisiana. Uh, did one uh, challenging uh, environmental uh, effects in Glacier Bay, and another one in the Grand, Grand Canyon. 
in addition to those actually involved in the case, one of the pro bono activities that I'm most committed to uh, is a program sponsored by the Supreme Court Historical Society and an organization called Street Law. Uh, they bring high school teachers to D.C. every summer to teach them about the Supreme Court and they can then go back and uh, teach the court in their uh, classes. And I've always found that very, very uh, fulfilling. Thank you. My time is up. Thanks, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Hatch. Senator Kennedy? Thank you. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, that street law program is a marvelous program. I commend you for your involvement uh, in that. Uh, the stark and tragic uh, images of human suffering in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina have reminded us yet again that civil rights and equal rights are still the great unfinished business of America. The suffering has been disproportionately borne by the weak, the poor, the elderly, and the infirm, and largely by African Americans who are forced by poverty, illness, and unequal opportunity to stay behind and bear the brunt of the storm's winds and floods. I believe that kind of disparate impact is morally wrong in this, the richest country in the world. One question we must consider today is how we can take action to unify our nation, heal racial division, end poverty, and give real life meaning to the constitutional mandate that there be equal protection under law. I believe that the Constitution is not hostile to the, the idea that national problems can be solved at the national level through the cooperative efforts of the three co-equal branches of government, the Congress, the executive, and the courts. But not every president, not every legislator, and not every judge agrees that the federal government has the power to address and to try to remedy the twin national problems of poverty and access to equal opportunity. I'm not talking about a handout, but a hand up to give all of our citizens a fair shot at the American dream. Judge Roberts, today we want to find out how you view the Constitution, our ability to protect the most vulnerable. You believe that Congress has the power to pass laws aimed at eliminating discrimination in our society, or do you believe that our hands are tied, that the elected representatives of the people of the United States are without the power to pass laws aimed at righting wrongs, ending injustice, eliminating the inequalities that we have just witnessed so dramatically and tragedy, tragically in New Orleans. The American people want to know where you stand. We want to find out your view of the rule of law and the role of courts in our system. That's why it is so important, and I hope we will receive your frank and candid and complete responses to the questions we ask today. To start my inquiry, I want to discuss with you the Brown versus Board of Education, which you have already mentioned this morning, which I believe is the most important civil rights decision in our lifetime. In Brown decided in 1954, the year before you were born, the Supreme Court concluded unequivocally that black children have the constitutional right to be educated in the same classrooms as white students. The court rejected the old doctrine of separate but equal, finding that it violated the equal protection clause of the 14th Amendment. In considering the issues raised by Brown, the court took a broad and real-life view of the question before it. It asked, does segregation of children in public schools solely on the basis of race, even though physical facilities and other tangible factors may be equal, deprive the children of the minority group of equal educational opportunities. So do you agree with the court's conclusion that the segregation of children in public schools solely on the basis of race was unconstitutional? I do. 
And do you believe that the court had the power to address segregation of public schools on the basis of the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution? Yes. And are you you're aware that the Brown was a unanimous decision? Yes, it was the um, represented a lot of work by Chief Justice Earl Warren because my understanding of the history is that it initially was not, and he spent it was re-argued. He spent a considerable amount of time talking to his colleagues uh, and bringing around to the point where they ended up with the unanimous and court. A lot of work by the plaintiffs as well. I'm sure. Sure. Uh, first in. Reaching its decision, the court concluded that it must consider public education in the light of its full development and its present place in American life uh, throughout the nation. That is, that it must consider the conditions and impact of its decision in the real present day world. The court specifically declined to rely on the legislative history of the 14th uh, Amendment. It looked instead to the facts and situation as they exist in the case and in the world at the time of the decision. Judge Roberts, do you agree that the court was correct in basing its decision on real world consideration of the role of public education at the time of its decision rather than the role of public education in 1868 when the 14th Amendment was adopted? Well, certainly, Senator. Um, the, the importance of the court's approach in Brown is, of course, to re recognize that the issue was whether or not the discrimination uh, violated equal protection, and you have to look at the discrimination in the context in which it is occurring. I know there's been a lot of recent um, uh, academic research into this, the original intent of the drafters of the 14th Amendment. Um, Professor McConnell's piece suggests that it's perfectly consistent with the conclusion in Brown. Uh, and it's also that the very point you mentioned was an important one, that the, the nature of the institution of public education wasn't formed to the same extent at the time of the drafting That's yeah, right. as it was at the time of the so decision. The Brown court also held that it was important to look at the effects of segregation on public education. The court determined that education was so vital to a child's development and opportunity for advancement in society where the state had undertaken to provide public education, it must be available to all on equal terms. Thus it found that the separate education was inherently unequal. Uh, so it's fair for me to conclude you accept both the holding and the reasoning uh, well, in the Brown case. The, the reasoning, though, I think it's important. It is focused on the, the effects, yes, but the conclusion was that they didn't care if the effects were equal. In other words, the, uh, the, the genius of the decision was the recognition that the act of separating the students was where the violation was, and it rejected the defense certainly just a theoretical one given the actual record, that you could have equal facilities and equal treatment. I think the conclusion, if the record had shown, which it did not, if it had shown perfectly equal treatment in the African American school and in the white school, that Chief Justice Warren's analysis would be the same because the act of separation is what constituted the discrimination. If we could move on now. The Brown decision was just the beginning of the historic march for progress towards equal rights for all of our citizens. In the 60s and 70s, we came together as a Congress, Republicans and Democrats alike, and passed the historic civil rights legislation that was signed by the President to guarantee equality for all of our citizens on the basis of race, then on gender, then on disability. We passed legislation to eliminate the barriers to voting that so many minorities had faced in too many states in the country. We passed legislation that prevented racial discrimination in housing. 
Those landmark laws were supported by Republicans and Democrats in Congress, and they were signed into law by both Republican and Democratic presidents. Intelligent and dedicated attorneys in the Justice Department and in the White House and on Capitol Hill devoted their extraordinary talents and imagination and perseverance to making these laws effective. Every one of the new laws was tested in court all the way to the Supreme Court. And I'd like to find out, Judge Roberts, whether you'd agree that the progress that we made in civil rights over the past 50 years is irreversible. I'd like to find out whether you think that these laws are constitutional or whether you have any concerns or questions about them. Do you have any concerns or reservations about the constitutionality uh, of the 1964 Civil Rights Act that outlawed racial discrimination in public accommodations, employment, and other areas? I don't think any issue has been raised concerning those. Um, you know, I'm cautious, of course, about expressing an opinion on a matter that might come before the court. I don't think that's one that's likely to come before the court. So uh, I, I'm not aware of the doubt, any questions that have been raised uh, concerning that, Senator. So uh, I'll assume that uh, you don't feel that there are any doubts on the constitutionality of the 64 Act. Do you have any doubts as to the constitutionality of the 65 Voting Rights Act? Well, now, that's an issue, of course, as you know. It's up for uh, renewal, um, and that is a question that could come before the court. The, the uh, question of Congress's power, uh, again, without expressing any views on it, um, I do know that it's going to be... Well, that's gone up and down uh, the uh, Supreme Court, the 65 Act and again the 1982 Act extension. Yes, and, and, and the, the uh, issue I, I'm just trying to find out on the Voting Rights Act whether you have any problem at all and trouble at all in terms of the constitutionality of the existing Voting Rights Act that was extended oh, by the Congress. Well, the existing Voting Rights Act, the constitutionality has been upheld, and I don't have any okay. issue with that. There's a separate question that would be raised if the Voting Rights Act were extended, as I know Congress is considering. And those arguments have been raised uh, about whether or not particular provisions should be extended or should not be extended. And since those questions might well come before the court, um, I do need to exercise caution on that. But with regards to the act that we passed, the bipartisan act, I'm going to come back to it, and about your position on the 1982 act. I know you had concerns, and I'm going to come back to those. But you're not suggesting that there's any constitutional uh, well, I'm not aware. I'm not aware of any okay. constitutional issue that's been raised about it. Um, but right. Again, I don't want to express conclusions on hypothetical questions, whether as applied in a particular case, whether there be a challenge in that respect. Those cases come up uh, all the time, all right. and I do need to keep, uh, uh, avoid expressing an opinion on those issues. Well, well uh, it seems that on, that on voting rights, with all of its importance and significance, and with the extraordinary bipartisan uh, balance that came together on that act. I'm going to come back to it. I know you had some reservations about it, uh, which we will come uh, uh, to. Uh, but that, uh, as I uh, am wondering whether you are hesitant at all in saying that you believe that it's constitutional. My hesitancy, Senator, is simply this, that cases do come up. Um, I had one in the D.C. Circuit. Uh, uh, concerning issues under the Voting Rights okay. Act. And I All don't right. know what arguments parties will be raising in those 
cases. So uh, an abstract question, you need to know, obviously, what's the claim, what's the issue, and decide it according to the rule of law. About the constitutionality of the 68 fair housing legislation that outlawed racial discrimination in housing. Again, I think that my understanding is it's been upheld, and I'm not aware of any issues that are arising under it. I suppose if there's a particular claim presented under that statute, uh, litigants make all sorts of arguments, and they may raise an argument that it's unconstitutional as applied in a particular case, and the court would have to decide that question. Well, I, I was sort of inhaling your answer to my friend Orrin Hatch about the power of the legislature and the deference that you're going to give when the legislature makes judgments and findings, particularly in the areas of voting, that we spend such an extraordinary amount of time. The chairman was so involved uh, in that legislation. Let's go to the Voting Rights Act. Um, as you know, we have had a chance to go through many of the documents that you authored during the early and mid-1980s when you worked in the Department of Justice and in the White House. I'm deeply troubled. I'm interested in your views today, let me point out. But because we don't have all the documents that we'd like to have, I'm working with the documents that we do. And I want to go through those, get your reactions, and ask your views today. I'm deeply troubled by a narrow and cramped and perhaps even a mean-spirited view of the law that appears in some of your writings. In the only documents that have been made available to us, it appears that you did not fully appreciate the problem of discrimination in our society. It also seems that you are trying to undo the progress that so many people had fought for and died for in this country. At the outset, I want to be clear that I do not think, nor am I suggesting, that you are a person who is in favor of discrimination. I don't believe that. I am concerned, however, that at the time you were writing these laws and memoranda and notes, you simply did not grasp the seriousness of the impact of discrimination on our country as a whole. Let's start with the Voting Rights Act. Most Americans think that the right to vote is among the most important tools that they have to participate in our uh, democracy. You, you do agree, don't you, Judge Roberts, that the right to vote is a fundamental constitutional right? Uh, it is preservative, I think, of all the other rights. Uh, without access to the ballot box, people are not in a position to protect the, any other rights that are important to them. And so I think it's one of, as you said, the most precious rights we have as Americans. And you will recall that in the 60 millions of our fellow citizens denied access to voting uh, booth because of race. And to remedy that injustice, Congress passed the Voting Rights Act of 65 that outlawed discrimination in voting. Section 2 of that act is widely believed to be the most effective civil rights statutes enacted by Congress. In 1982, Congress took action to extend the Voting Rights Act and to make it clear that discriminatory voting practices and procedures are illegal if they are intended to be racially discriminatory or if they are shown to have a racially discriminatory impact. It was this latter provision the prohibition against voting practices that have a discriminatory impact that provoke your heated opposition, Judge Roberts. In our earlier discussion of Brown versus Board of Education, you agreed that the actual impact of racial segregation on public education and school children was perfectly valid for the court to consider, but when it came to voting rights, you rejected the consideration of actual impact. You wrote that violations of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, and I quote, should not be made too easy to prove since they provide a basis for the most intrusive 
interference imaginable by federal courts into state and local processes. You also wrote, and I quote, it would be difficult to conceive of a more drastic alteration of local government affairs and under our federal system such an intrusion should not be too readily permitted. And you didn't stop there. You concluded that Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act was, quote, constitutionally suspect and contrary to the most fundamental tenets of the legislating process on which the laws of this country are based. So I'm deeply troubled by another statement that you made at the time, and I quote, there is no evidence of voting abuses nationwide supporting the need for such a change. No evidence? I was there, Judge Roberts, in both the House and the Senate, had the extensive hearings. We considered detailed, specific testimony from affected voters throughout the country, but you dismissed the work of Congress out of hand. Don't be fooled, you wrote, by the House vote or the 61 Senate sponsors of the bill. Many members of the House did not know that they were doing more than simply extending the act, and several of the 61 senators have already indicated they only intended to support a simple extension. Judge Roberts, Republican and Democrats overwhelming supported this legislation, but you thought we didn't really know what we were doing. Newt Gingrich, James Sensenbrenner voted for the House bill. Dan Quayle was an original Senate co-sponsor of the bill. We held extensive hearings, created a lengthy record, yet you thought there was no evidence of voting abuses that would justify the legislation. Your comment? Do you believe today that we need the federal laws to assure that all our citizens are, have the equal access to the voting booth, and do you basically uh, support the 1982 well, Voting Rights Act? Senator, you will recall at the time of the, uh, this was 23 years ago, um, I was the staff lawyer in the Justice Department. It was the position of the Reagan administration for whom I worked, the position of the Attorney General for whom I worked, that the Voting Rights Act should be extended for the longest period of its extension in history uh, without change. Uh, the Supreme Court had interpreted in the Mobile versus Bolden case uh, section 2, to have an intent test, not an effects test. Keep in mind, of course, as you know uh, very well, Section 5, the preclearance provision, had always had an effects test and that would be continued. The reference to discrimination nationwide was addressing the particular point that the effects test had been applied in particular jurisdictions that had a history of discrimination. Uh, and the question is whether or not there was a similar history of discrimination that supported extending the effects test in Section 2. It was the position of the administration for which I worked that the proposal was to extend the Voting Rights Act without change. Uh, your position at the time uh, was that the intent test that the Supreme Court had determined was in Section 2 should be changed to the effects test, and that was the position that eventually prevailed. Uh, there was no disagreement. Roberts, the effects test was the law of the land from the Zimmer case to the Mobile case. It was the law of the land. That was the law of the land that court after court decided about the impact of the effects test. The Mobile case, 
case changed the Zimmer case. Well, Senator, you and disagree. What we well, were, Senator, let, let, let him finish his answer. Okay. Well, I'd, I'd just like to uh, to get his whether the Zimmer case was not the holding this, and the rule of the uh, law of the land prior to the Mobile case. Well, this is the same debate that took place 23 years ago uh, on this very same issue. And the administration's position, you think the Supreme Court got it wrong in Mobile against Bolden. No, that, that's not what I think it was wrong, but I also think the law of the land decided by the Supreme Court in the Zimmer case upheld in court after court after court after court was the effects test. Well, and the, and the Supreme that's Court... All, that's all... Let him finish his answer, Senator uh, Kennedy. The point is, and again, this is revisiting a debate that took place 23 years ago. Well, I'm interested and, and the, today in your view. Uh, well, do you support the... The, the law that Ronald Reagan signed into law, and it was co-sponsored overwhelmingly. Certainly, certainly. The, uh, and the point, the only point I would make, uh, this was the same disagreement and the same debate that took place then over whether the court was right or wrong in Mobile versus Bolden. Um, and the point I would make is uh, twofold: um, that those uh, like President Reagan, like Attorney General Smith, who were advocating an extension of the Voting Rights Act without change. Uh, were as fully committed to protecting the right to vote as anyone. Right. Um, Could I? That, I'll let him finish his answer, Senator Kennedy. And the articulation of views that you read from uh, represented my effort to articulate the views of the administration and the position of the administration uh, for whom I worked, for which I worked uh, 23 years ago. Well, um, after President Reagan signed it into law, did you agree with that that uh, position I, I certainly, of the administration? I certainly agree that the Voting Rights Act should be extended. I certainly agree that the effects test in Section 5 should be extended. We had argued okay. that the intent test uh, that the Supreme Court recognized in Mobile against Bolden, I know you think it was wrong, but that was the, the Supreme Court's interpretation. Well, uh, uh, should have been extended. The, the, again, as you said, the compromise that worked, you and Senator Dole uh, worked out was enacted into law and signed into law uh, by President Reagan. And the Voting Rights Act has continued to be an important legislative tool to ensure uh, that most precious of, of rights, which is preservative of all other rights. There was never any dispute uh, about that basic proposition. Well, what I'm getting to is after it was signed into law, overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly by the House and the Senate. Uh, we have the memoranda that you said, the fact we were burned last year, this is the following year, we did not, uh, the fact we were burned last year because we did not sail in with the new voting rights legislation does not mean we'll be hurt this year if we go slowly on housing legislation. What did you mean when you said that we were burned last year? By not well, I think the, the Voting the, Rights Act. The legislative debate between those who favored extending the Voting Rights Act as is and those who favored changing the act because they disagreed with the Supreme Court decisions. Uh, the, the legislative judgment was that we, the administration's proposal didn't succeed because they had waited before, rather than coming out in favor of an extension right away, they waited for Congress to come up with its proposals, which turned out to be different than the administration proposals. On the housing discrimination, I would note that the administration did get its ducks in a row, and in a matter of months after the date of the memo that you just read from, 
uh, had its housing proposal uh, uh, there and submitted to Congress, and it was enacted. The 1988 Housing Act, Fair Housing Act. The, the administration's proposal was submitted, I believe, months after the date of Let the me, memo. If I could go to the Civil Rights Restoration Act. In 1981, you support an effort by the Department of Education to reverse 17 years of civil right protections at colleges and universities that receive federal funds. Under the new regulations, the definition of federal assistance to colleges and universities would be narrowed to exclude certain types of student loans and grants so that fewer institutions would be covered by the civil rights laws. As a result, more colleges and universities would legally be able to discriminate against people of color, women, and the disabled. Your efforts to narrow the protection of the civil rights laws did not stop there, however. In 1984, in the Grove City v. Bell, the Supreme Court decided, contrary to the Department of Education regulations that you supported, that student loans and grants did indeed constitute federal assistance to colleges for purposes of triggering civil rights protections. But in a surprising twist, the court concluded that the non-discrimination laws were intended to apply only to the specific program receiving the funds and not to the institution as a whole. Under that reasoning, a university that received federal aid in the form of tuition could not discriminate in admissions, but was free to discriminate in athletics, housing, faculty hiring, and any other programs that did not receive the direct funds. If the admissions office didn't discriminate, they got the funds through the admission office, they could discriminate in any other place of the university. A strong bipartisan majority in both the House and the Senate decided to pass another law, the Civil Rights Restoration Act, to make it clear that they intended to prohibit discrimination in all programs and activities of a university that receive federal assistance. You vehemently opposed the Civil Rights Restoration Act. Even after the Grove City Court found otherwise, you still believe that there was, quote, and this is your quote, a good deal of intuitive appeal to the argument that federal loans and grants to students should not be viewed as fe federal financial assistance to the university. You realize, of course, that these loans and grants to the students were paid to the university as tuition. Then even though you acknowledged that the program-specific aspect of the Supreme Court decision was going to be overturned by the congressional legislation, you continued to believe that it would uh, be, quote, too onerous for colleges to comply with non-discrimination laws across the entire university unless it was, quote, on the basis of something more solid than federal aid to students. Judge Roberts, if your position prevailed, it would have been legal in many cases to discriminate in athletics for girls, women, it would have been legal to discriminate in the hiring of teachers, would have been legal not to provide services or accommodations to the disabled. Do you still believe today that it is too onerous for the government to require universities that accept tuition payments from students who rely on federal grants and loans not to discriminate in any of their programs or activities? Uh, no, Senator, and I did not back then. You, you have not accurately represented my position. 
Um, These are your he, words. I'll let him finish his answer. Senator, with quite a long, you have well, selected. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Senator Kennedy just propounded a very, very long question. Now let him answer the question. Senator, you did not accurately represent my position. The Grove City College case presented two separate questions, and it was a matter being litigated, of course, in the courts. The universities were arguing that they were not covered at all by the civil rights laws in question simply because their students uh, had federal financial assistance and attended their universities. That was their first argument. The second argument was, even if they were covered, all that was covered was the admissions office and not other programs that themselves did not receive separate financial assistance. Our position, the position of the administration, and again, that was the position I was advancing. Uh, uh, I was not formulating policy. Uh, I was articulating and defending the administration position. And the administration was, position was, yes, you are covered if the students receive federal financial assistance and that the coverage extended to the admissions office. That was the position that the Supreme Court agreed with. We were interpreting legislation. The question is, what is the correct interpretation of the legislation? The position that the administration advanced was the one I had just described. The universities were covered due to federal financial assistance to their students. It extended to the admissions office. The Supreme Court, in the Grove City case, agreed with that position. So the position the administration had articulated, the Supreme Court concluded, was a correct interpretation of what this body, this, the Congress, uh, had enacted. Congress then changed the position about coverage, and that position was, I believe, signed into law by the President, and that became the new law. Uh, the memo you read about Secretary Bell's proposal, if I remember it, was, well, he said, if we're going to cover all of the universities, then we shouldn't hinge coverage simply on federal financial assistance. And the position I took in the memorandum was that, no, we should not revisit that question. We should not revisit the question that federal financial assistance triggers coverage. Well, um, you're familiar. I have the, the memo here. I've got 22 seconds left in your quote of this. If the entire institution uh, is to be covered, however, it should be on the basis of something more solid than federal aid to the students. I think most of the members of the Congress feel that if the aid uh, to the universities, the tuition and the loans and the grants were going to be sufficient to trigger all of the civil rights laws, your memoranda here, if the entire institution is to be covered, however, it should be on the basis of something more solid than federal aid to the students. That's your memoranda. Well, Senator, again, the, the administration policy was as I articulated it, and it was my job to articulate the administration policy. This is a good job, Mr. Chairman. Yes, thank you very much, Senator Kennedy. This is a good time for a 15-minute break. Thanks, Senator. We will reconvene our hearing. We will take three more rounds of questions so that we will go until approximately uh, there'll be two more rounds of questions to uh, 12.45 and we will then break uh, for lunch the both uh, Republicans and Democrats have their policy luncheons and we will then reconvene after lunch until 2.15 and I've been asked how late we're going to go, and let's see how it feels. Uh, 
Uh, we want to move ahead with the hearings, but we don't want to wear everybody out. Senator Grassley. Uh, Judge Roberts, for a second time, I would congratulate you and your family on your nomination. I would also, for a second time, thank you for the time you spent in my office for me to talk privately with you uh, several weeks ago. I'm impressed by your record, uh, your public service, and obviously you, you uh, demonstrate uh, your intellect very well, and we ought to be satisfied with that. Uh, let me remind everybody that Judge Roberts was confirmed unanimously to the D.C. Circuit Court just two years ago by the Senate, and that uh, the ABA, the American Bar Association, has recommended him to be, in their words, unanimously well-qualified for this position on the Supreme Court. So I believe uh, with everything we've seen demonstrated, you're obviously as qualified a nominee as I've seen in the 24 years that I've been on this committee. Uh, in addition, I want to thank you for a great deal of candor you have in answering questions and giving information. Uh, the Judiciary Committee has uh, received from you or from government uh, agencies that you've been affiliated with, thousands of documents on your record, uh, thousands of documents. Uh, and we all have uh, combed through the documents, the briefs and uh, opinions that uh, you've offered uh, to assess your qualifications to the Supreme Court. I think that we've been provided with a vast amount of information, more than I think any other candidate to the Supreme Court. Uh, this confirmation process is very important, however, not so that we can seek to obtain your commitments on specific cases, but rather to more fully understand your approach to deciding cases. In addition, you've been nominated to be Chief Justice, so I'm going to be interested in some of my questioning today or tomorrow about your priorities for the federal judiciary and what you think about the administration of justice and some of those questions you might anticipate don't involve cases coming before the Supreme Court and maybe on administering uh, the, that branch of government you could be a little more concrete what you support and don't support. Uh, and of course, lastly, I appreciate your candor and thoughtfulness. Our conversation now will not only tell us more about your judicial method, but will also, I hope, educate the public uh, on the proper role of a judge in our democratic society. Uh, most people who will be following these hearings will be, like me, a non-lawyer. Uh, and I think it's important that uh, the, the bulk of our society, particularly those who aren't in the law, understand limits on judicial power in our system of checks and balances of government. Judge Roberts, I believe that we should be filling the federal branch with uh, individuals who will be fair, who will be unbiased, devoted to addressing facts and the law before them without imposing their own values and political beliefs in reaching a decision. Now you made clear that you agree with that. I'm not asking you, but I think you made clear that you agree with that with your umpire analogy that you used yesterday. Our founding fathers clearly intended the judiciary to be the least dangerous branch of government. Alexander Hamilton, in fact, in Federalist Paper 78, cautioned against judges substituting their own belief for constitutional intent when he wrote these words. The courts must declare the sense of the law, and if they should be disposed to exercise will instead of judgment, 
the consequences would be the substitution of their pleasure for that of the legislative body. I think that this standard is important for all judges, even more so with Supreme Court justices, and I hope at the end of our hearings that we uh, feel, as I am beginning to feel now, that you share that. Uh, so, Judge Roberts, beyond your umpire analogy, what do you understand to be the role of a judge in a democratic society? And I would like your reaction to a quote of Justice Cardozo on the nature of the judicial process, and he said this, uh, not paraphrasing, but direct quote, <clears throat> the judge, even when he is free, is still not wholly free. He is not to innovate at pleasure. He is not knight-errant, roaming at will in pursuit of his own ideal of beauty or of goodness. He is not to yield to spasmodic sentiment, to vague or unregulated benevolence. He is to exercise a discretion informed by tradition, methodized by analogy, disciplined by system, and subordinated to the primordial, primordial uh, necessity of order in social life, wide enough in all conscience is the field of discretion that remains. What do you think of Justice Cardozo meant by that passage, and do you agree with it? Uh, I know I agree with it. Um, now let me figure out what he meant by it. Um, I, I think what he meant um, was that uh, judges operate as judges when they're confined by the law. Um, uh, when I became a lawyer, the uh, proclamation they read for the graduates were they referred to the law as the wise <coughs> restraints that make men free. And judges are the same way. Um, we don't turn a matter over to a judge because we want his view about what the best idea is, what the best solution is. It's because we want him or her to apply uh, the law. They are constrained when they do that. They're constrained by the words that you choose to enact into a law, uh, in interpreting the law. They're constrained by the words of the Constitution. They're constrained by the precedents of other judges that become part of the rule of law that they must apply. Um, and that is that cabining of their discretion, um, that's what Hamilton referred to in Federalist 78. He said, you judges should not have an absolute discretion. They need to be bound down by rules and precedents, the rules, the laws that you pass, the precedents that judges before them have shaped. Um, and then their job is interpreting the law. It's not making the law. Uh, and so long as they are being uh, confined uh, uh, by the laws, by the Constitution, by the precedents, uh, then you're more comfortable that you're exercising the judicial function. It's when you're uh, at sea and you don't have anything to look to uh, that you need to begin to worry that uh, this isn't what judges are supposed to do. Well, is there any room in constitutional interpretation for the judges' own values or beliefs? No, I don't think there is. Um, uh, sometimes it's hard uh, to give meaning to a constitutional term in a particular case, um, but you don't look to your own values and beliefs. Um, uh, you look outside yourself. 
uh, to other sources. This is the basis for, you know, the judges uh, wear black robes because it doesn't matter who they are as individuals. That's not going to shape their decision. Uh, it's their understanding of the law that will shape their decision. Uh, some legal scholars claim that when the political branches of government are slow to act, the broad and spacious terms of the Constitution lend themselves to uh, court-created solutions. Do you agree with this role of the court? I have said that it is not the job of the court to solve uh, society's problems, and I believe that. Um, it is the job of the court to decide particular cases. Now, sometimes cases are brought and the courts have to decide them, uh, even though the other branches uh, have been slow to act, as you say. Uh, you know, Brown versus Board of Education is a good example. Uh, the other branches in society were not addressing the problems of uh, segregation in the schools. They were not just slow to act, they weren't acting. Uh, but that didn't mean the courts should step in and act. But when the courts were presented with a case that presented the challenge, this, this segregation violates the Equal Protection Clause. The courts did have the obligation to decide that case uh, and, and resolve it, and in the course of doing that, of course, uh, change the course of American history. Your reference to Brown would be a good time to throw in this uh, question. Do you agree with the view that the courts, rather than the elected branches, should take the lead in creating a more just society? Again, it is the obligation of the courts to decide particular cases. Um, often that means uh, acting on the side of, of justice as we understand it, enforcing the Bill of Rights, enforcing the Equal Protection Clause. But it has to be in the context of a case and it has to be in the context of interpreting a provision that's implicated in that case. They don't have a license to go out and decide, I think this is an injustice and so I'm going to do something to fix it. That type of uh, 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 judicial role, I think, is inconsistent with the role the framers intended. When they have to decide a case, it may well, from time to time, in particular cases, put them in the role of vindicating the vision of justice that the framers enacted in the Constitution. And that is a legitimate role for them. But it's always in the context of deciding a proper case that's been presented. Uh, Judge Roberts, um, during the Souter nomination, I questioned, uh, and, and I didn't go back and check the record just to see exactly what I said, but I questioned in some way about how he would interpret uh, statutory law. Justice Souter responded to some of my questions by talking about vacuums in the law, uh, specifically that the courts, and these are his words, fill vacuums that are maybe left by Congress. This concept was troubling to me then and remains so today, and I'd like if uh, Justice Souter is listening, I'd like to say to him, well, you know, maybe Congress intended to leave some vacuums. Uh, so I'd like to know how much filling in of vacuums in the law left by Congress will you do as a Supreme Court justice? Do you think this is a way for the court to be activists in that courts will be deciding how to fill in generalities and resolve contradictions in law? Well, I, I don't want to directly comment on uh, what Justice Souter said. He's uh, either going to be a colleague or continue to be one of my bosses. So uh, I want to maintain good relations in either case. Um, but um, I do think it's important to recognize in construing legislation um, that sometimes a decision has been made not to address a particular problem. Um, 
that isn't uh, a license for the courts to go ahead and address it because that would be overriding a congressional decision. Um, at the same time, as it's always the case, uh, courts are sometimes put in the position of having to decide a question uh, that Congress has left deliberately or inadvertently uh, unanswered. Um, we see that in the issue of what remedies are available under an implied right of action when Congress has not spelled them out. And the courts sometimes have to address that sort of question. And if it's presented in a case, it's unavoidable. But uh, again, I resort back to the bedrock principle of legitimacy in the American system for courts, which is that any uh, authority to interpret the law, any authority to interpret the Constitution, derives from the obligation to decide a particular case or controversy. In your questionnaire to the committee, you stated that, quote, precedent plays an important role in promoting stability of the legal system, end of quote. Uh, I think we would all agree. Uh, you also said that a judge operates within, quote, system of rules developed over the years by other judges equally striving to live, live up to their judicial oath, end of quote. It's also true that Justice Frankfurter explained, uh, as he explained, that, quote, the ultimate touchstone touch of constitutionality is the Constitution itself, not what we have said about it. Erroneous interpretations of the Constitution can be corrected only by this court, I suppose by constitutional amendment as well. The court has done so many times, and most famously you referred to it, uh, the Brown case, uh, which overruled separate but equal precedent that stood for 58 years. So, Judge Roberts, I'd like to ask you a few questions on the issue of precedence and its value in our legal system. History has provided many examples of the dangers of government by the judiciary, such as the court's decision in Dred Scott. Uh, do you share President Lincoln's concerns that I'm going to quote here from his first inaugural? Quote, if the policy of the government upon vital questions affecting the whole people is to be irrevocably fixed by the decisions of the Supreme Court, the instant they are made in ordinary litigation, the people will have ceased to be their own rulers. End of quote. Well, President Lincoln, of course, was referring to one of the perhaps the most egregious example of judicial activism in our history, the Dred Scott case, in which the court... Uh, uh, went far beyond what was necessary to decide the case uh, and um, uh, really uh, I think historians would say that the Supreme Court tried to put itself in the position of resolving the uh, dispute about the extension of slavery and resolving it in a particular way that it thought was best for the nation and we saw what disastrous consequences flowed from that. And, and Lincoln's comment about it, and he, he had several comments because even when he was running for uh, a Senate, a big part of his the, the famous debates were, well, this is what the Supreme Court has said. Are you going to follow it or not? And, and Lincoln was a very careful lawyer in his, his responses. And, and uh, the reason it was such a problem is because he was dealing with such an overarching Supreme Court decision. They didn't even just decide the particular case. The, the court decided to take upon itself opining more generally on how the whole issue should be resolved. And of course, uh, as I said, it, it, it was a disaster. So uh, yes, the extent Lincoln's criticism is how broad and overreaching the court opinion was and that that in itself 
presented a very difficult problem in terms of adherence to the decision. I do agree with that. Let me uh, carry that one step further uh, beyond his quote. Uh, you, you now as a uh, appeals court judge obviously are bound by Supreme Court precedent. But on the Supreme Court, a justice has much more freedom to reevaluate prior Supreme Court decisions. Um, I'd like to explore the approach that you would take in your examination of Supreme Court presidents. Could you tell us what you believe is the appropriate judicial role describing for us the value of precedent uh, in our legal system? Certainly. Um, and here again, we're guided by the court. It has uh, uh, precedent on precedence. Uh, uh, it has cases talking about when you should revisit prior precedents and when you shouldn't. And of course some of the cases say you should in the particular instance and others uh, that you shouldn't. Uh, you begin with a basic recognition of the value of precedent. No judge gets up every morning with a clean slate and says, well, what should the Constitution look like today? Um, uh, the approach is a more modest one. You begin with the precedents. Adherence to precedents prom precedent promotes even-handedness promotes fairness, promotes stability and predictability, and those are very important values in the legal system. Those precedents become part of the rule of law that the judge must apply. At the same time, as the court pointed out in the Casey case, the stare decisis is not an inexorable command. Uh, if particular precedents have proven to be unworkable, uh, they don't lead to predictable results, they're difficult to apply, that's one factor supporting reconsideration. If the bases of the precedents have been eroded, in other words, if the court decides a case saying, because of these three precedents, we reach this result, and in the intervening years, two of those are overruled, that's another basis for reconsidering the, the precedent. At the same time, you always have to take into account the settled expectations that have grown up around the prior precedent. Uh, it is a jolt to the legal system to overrule uh, a precedent, and that has to be taken into account, as well as the different expectations that have grown up around it. There are different other aspects of the rules. Uh, for example, property decisions are far less likely to be reconsidered because of the expectations that grow up around them. Statutory decisions are less likely to be reconsidered uh, because Congress can fix it if it's a, if it's a mistake. Um, it's, again, the court's decisions in cases like Casey and Dickerson, Payne versus Tennessee and Agostini, State Oil Company versus Kahn. It's an issue that comes up on a regular basis, and the court has developed a body of law that would guide judges and justices when they decide whether to revisit a case. The fundamental proposition is that it is not sufficient to view the prior case as wrongly decided. That's the opening of the process, not the end of the process. You have to decide whether it should be revisited in light of all these considerations. Given your views on judicial restraint, can you tell us to what extent you feel obliged to uphold a decision which you found not to be based on the original intent uh, of the Constitution? Could you explain what factors or criteria you might use to evaluate to see whether a decision deviated uh, from original intent, whether it should be overruled? Well, again, you would start with the precedence of the court on that decision. In other words, if you think uh, the decision uh, was correctly decided or wrongly decided, that doesn't answer the question of whether or not it should be revisited. You do have to look at whether or not the decision has 
led to a workable rule, you have to consider whether it's created uh, uh, settled expectations that should not be disrupted in the interest of regularity in the legal system. Uh, you do have to look at whether or not the bases of the precedent have been eroded. Those are the main considerations that the court has articulated in a case like, like Dickerson, Payne versus Tennessee and the others. These are all the factors that the court looks at. Uh, obviously a view about the case presents the question, but the court has emphasized uh, it's not enough to think that the decision is wrong to take the next step to revisit it and overrule. In your confirmation for the D.C. Circuit, you answered a question asking whether, by another member, whether you supported the originalist approach to constitutional interpretation by saying this. So I, I hope I'm quoting you accurately. I do not have an all-encompassing approach to constitutional interpretation. The appropriate approach depends to some degree on the specific provisions at issue. Some provisions of the Constitution provide considerable guidance on how they should be construed. Other are less precise. I would not hew to a particular school of interpretation, but would follow the approach or approaches that seem most suited in the particular case to correctly discerning the meaning of the provision at issue." End of quote. Could you explain what approaches you're talking about? I'm not sure uh, in, in your quote what you're getting at. Uh, secondly, can you give some examples? And three, I'd like to know what, uh, I'd like to know when uh, you don't believe that the originalist approach is the right approach. Well, I, I think it's very important to define these terms. Let's take the originalist approach. Um, I do think it's the, uh, uh, that, that the framers' intent is the guiding principle that should apply. However, uh, you do need to be very careful and make sure that you're giving appropriate weight to the words that the framers use to embody their intent. I think in particular of the, the 14th Amendment and the Equal Protection Clause. There are some who may think they're being originalists who will tell you well, the problem they were getting at were the rights of the newly freed slaves, and so that's all that the Equal Protection Clause applies to. But in fact, they didn't write the Equal Protection Clause in such narrow terms. They wrote more generally. That may have been a particular problem motivating them, but they chose to use broader terms, and we should take them at their word, so that it is perfectly appropriate to apply the Equal Protection Clause to issues of gender and other types of discrimination beyond the racial discrimination that was obviously the driving force behind it. That is an originalist view because you're looking at the original intent as expressed in the words that they chose. And their intent was to use broad language, not to use narrow language. Um, there are some areas where a very strict textualist approach uh, makes the most sense. Obviously, the example I gave earlier, two-thirds means two-thirds. You don't say, well, their purpose was to uh, apply some supermajority requirement, and now that we have more senators, three-fifths uh, will give effect to that intent. Uh, uh, nobody would apply that approach. You stick to the language. In other areas, the court's precedents dictate the approach. This is not something that uh, is purely a matter of academic exercise. For example, on the Seventh Amendment, the right to a jury trial, the court has been very specific. We have a historical approach there. The job of a judge is to sort of look at the whatever action is, and try to analogize it. What would that be most like in 1787? And if, it, if you got a jury trial for that, you get one today. And if you didn't, you don't. It's a purely historical approach. So 
the approaches do vary, um, and I don't have an overarching view. Um, as a matter of fact, I don't think very many judges do. I think a lot of academics do, um, but the demands of deciding cases and the demands of deciding cases by committee, either a group of three or a group of nine, uh, I find uh, with those demands the nuances of academic theory are dispensed with fairly quickly uh, and judges take a more practical and pragmatic approach to trying to reach the best decision consistent with the rule of law. Uh, I'm going to uh, go to uh, an issue that Senator Kennedy left off with um, regarding the Grove City case. And I have the memo that was involved in this issue uh, before me. Uh, and I see the memo being a summary of former Education Secretary Bell's views on this issue. But Senator Kennedy left out what your assessment was on it, and you wrote uh, these words. As a practical matter, however, I do not think the administration can revisit the issue at this late date, end of quote. Can you tell us what your position was in this memo? And Mr. Chairman, I'd like to have this entire memo submitted for the record. Without objection, it will be admitted as part of our record. Well, the, the issue was the, uh, in the Grove City case, the court had said that uh, receipt of financial aid by students triggered coverage under the civil rights uh, statutes uh, limited to the admissions office, to the admissions policies. Uh, the Civil Rights Restoration Act changed that result to say that the limitation was not to the admissions office, but applied more generally to the institution. Secretary Bell submitted a proposal. He said, well, if it's going to apply more generally to the institution, then the trigger of simply having students who receive financial aid shouldn't be enough. And the position that we took in response to Secretary Bell's proposal was no, that we weren't going to revisit it. We had argued earlier in Grove City that financial aid was enough to trigger coverage um, and we weren't going to revisit that uh, question. The position was that coverage of the entire institution based on the receipt of financial aid uh, was appropriate. Yeah. So Senator Kennedy's words were uh, not quoting you but quoting words that Senator uh, Secretary Bell had in this memo and you were reacting to those. Well it's, it's uh, again 23 some years ago but my recollection is that that was his proposal. Our response was that no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to change the position we've taken in light of the new legislation. Yeah. Uh, some uh, outside groups have claimed that uh, you're hostile to civil rights. Others have suggested, in my view, incorrectly, that you have an off-the-mark view of the Voting Rights Act. I believe that these allegations to be inaccurate, uh, and I'd like for you to set the record state. As you may know, I've long been a supporter of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, I appeared at a news conference with Senator Dole and Kennedy and some others in 1982 with that compromise that you've referred to. The Voting Rights Act has had very significant impact on racial discrimination, uh, probably more than anything else that Congress has done since the adoption of the Civil War Amendments. Your critics take issue with some of your memos which outline the arguments in the debate over whether Section 2 should have an effects test or an intent test. Specifically, there was a debate in Congress over concerns that the effects test could lead to legal requirements that racial quotas be mandated for legislatures and other elected bodies. Uh, ultimately, the Voting Rights Act was reauthorized with a provision expressly prohibiting courts from requiring racial quotas. 
uh, we were able to craft a good compromise that gave greater protection to minority voters while not requiring uh, quotas. Judge Roberts, could you tell us what your role was as an assistant attorney or assistant to Attorney General uh, Smith in developing the Reagan policy on the Voting Rights Act? Well, the uh, President Reagan's policy and the Attorney General's policy was to support the longest extension of the Voting Rights Act uh, in history without change. Um, the, uh, some in the Congress uh, wanted to amend the Voting Rights Act, Section 2, to overturn the Supreme Court's decision in Mobile against Bolden. And that's what the debate was about, whether it should be an intent test under Section 2 or an effects test. Everybody agreed that Section 5, the preclearance provision, which applied to jurisdictions with a history of discrimination, had an effects test and should continue to have an effects test. The debate was about Section 2 and whether it should be an intent test or an effects test. Um, but there was no disagreement among uh, President Reagan, uh, Attorney General Smith, uh, those of us on S Attorney General Smith's staff, like myself, uh, that the protection of the right to vote was critical, that the Voting Rights Act had been extraordinarily effective in preserving that right and should be extended. The debate was solely over whether or not the Section 2 should be changed. And Senator Dole, working with other members of the Senate, crafted a compromise uh, that resolved that dispute. As you said, it put an effects test in Section 2, put in additional language to guard against the sort of proportional representation that was certainly the concern of Attorney General Smith and President Reagan, and that was enacted into law with the President's uh, support. But there was no disagreement about uh, the, the critical nature of the right to vote, the notion that it was preservative of all other rights, and the question was simply about how it should be extended, whether extended as is or extended with the change that was enacted under the compromise. Uh, my time's just about out, so I'll ask a very short question. During your tenure as Solicitor General's office, didn't you sign on to a number of briefs that urged the Supreme Court to adopt a broad interpretation of the Voting Rights Act? Uh, its new requirements and to require expansive remedies when states violate the act and didn't some of those briefs take the same side as the ACLU, the Mexican American Legal Defense and Education Fund and the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights under the law? Yes, it was the responsibility of the Justice Department and before the Supreme Court, of course, the Office of the Solicitor General to enforce the civil rights laws, in particular the Voting Rights Act, as vigorously as possible and that's what we did. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Grassley. Senator Biden. Thank you very much. Hey, Judge, how are you? Fine, I, thank uh, you. You know, uh, continue your baseball analogy. I'd much rather be pitching to uh, to Arthur Brand sitting behind you there to, uh, on Law and Order uh, than you. It's like pitching to Ken Griffey. I mean, you know, I a uh, little concerned here that uh, I'd like you to switch places with Thompson. I know I know as much as he does. I don't know about you. Um, yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, Judge, look, um, I'm on a cut, trying to cut through some stuff here if I can. Uh, um, I said yesterday this shouldn't be a game of gotcha, you know. We shouldn't be playing a game. The folks have a right to know what you think. Um, you're there for life. They don't get to, you know, this is the democratic moment. They don't get a chance to say, you know, I wish I'd known that about that guy. I would have picked up the phone and called my senator and said, vote no uh, or vote yes, uh, whichever. And so uh, what I'd like to do is... Uh, Stick with your analogy a little bit because everybody's used it. Baseball, you, by the way, to continue that 
that metaphor, you hit a home run yesterday. I mean, you know, everybody, I got home and I got in the train of people saying, oh, he likes baseball, huh? And uh, seriously, uh, the conductors, people on the train, and, and, it's, and it's an apt metaphor because, you know, you just call balls and strikes. Call them as you see them, straight up. But, uh, but as you well know, um, as we, I like to explore that philosophy a little bit because you got asked that question by Senator Hatch about what is your philosophy and, you, and, you, and, and, and the baseball metaphor is used again. As you know, in Major League Baseball, they have a rule. Rule two defines the strike zone. It basically says from the shoulders to the knees. And the only question about judges is, do they have good eyesight or not? They don't get to change the strike zone. They don't get to say, that's down around the ankles, you know, and I think it was a strike. They don't get to do that. But you are in a very different position as a Supreme Court justice. As you pointed out, some places of the Constitution defines a strike zone. Two-thirds of the senators must vote. You must be an American citizen to the chagrin of Arnold Schwarzenegger to be president of the United States. I mean, uh, a, natural, a born in America to be a president of the United States. They're, they're all, the strike zone is set out. But as you pointed out in the question to Senator Hatch, I think you said unreasonable search and seizure. What constitutes unreasonable? So as much as I respect your metaphor, it's not very apt because you get to determine the strike zone. What's unreasonable? Your strike zone, unreasonable or unreasonable, may be very different than another judge's view of what is reasonable or unreasonable search and seizure. And the same thing prevails for a lot of other parts of the Constitution, the one that we're all talking about, and everybody here, no matter what we say it from left, right, and center, is concerned about the Liberty Clause of the 14th Amendment. It doesn't define it. All of the things we debate about here, and the court debates that deserve five to four decisions, they're almost all on issues that are ennobling phrases in the Constitution, that the founders never set a strike zone for. You get to go back and decide. You get to go back and decide, like in the Michael H. case, do you look at a narrow or a broad right that has been respected? That's a strike zone. So as uh, Chris Matthews, I said, let's play baseball here. And I like it. It's a little dangerous to play baseball with you, like I said. But, uh, um, but really and truly, it seems to me we may, maybe we can get it at this a different way. Um, the, uh, the, the explicit references in the Constitution are, you know, there's nothing anyone would suspect you or any other judge would do anything about. You, you, you wouldn't say, you know, that's a really bad treaty they're voting on, so you ought to make it require 75 votes in the Senate. You can't do that. But again, um, you know, as Justice Marshall said, and I quoted him yesterday, he said that the uh, Marshall's prescription that the, constant, the Constitution endure through the ages, I might add, without having to be amended over and over and over and over again. After the first ten amendments, we haven't done this very much in the last 230 years. So, many of the Constitution's most important provisions are, aren't the precise rules that I've referenced earlier. And sometimes the principles everyone agrees on uh, are part of the Constitution, are, as the late Chief Justice, your mentor, said, quote, tacit postulates. He used that, as you know, in a case just before you got there, Nevada versus Hall, but he used the phrase tacit postulates. He, he, was, he said that these tacit postulates 
are as much ingrained in the fabric of the document as its expressed provisions. And he went on to conclude that there was, this case was about, the case is not particularly relevant, but the point is, I think, the case in which Chief Justice Rehnquist made this vital point was about states' rights uh, uh, and, that, uh, and, uh, and language that didn't speak directly to them in the Constitution. And he said that he concluded the answer was a rule he was able to infer from the overall constitutional plan. So, Judge, you're going to be an inferrer. You're not going to be an umpire. Umpires don't infer. They don't get to infer. Every justice has to infer. So I want to try to figure out how you infer. I want to figure out how you go about this. And so let me get right to it. Um, uh, and I want to use the Ginsburg rule. I notice Ginsburg is quoted, I'm quoted all the time about Ginsburg. Judge, you don't have to answer that question. I might point out that Justice Ginsburg, and I just submit this for the record, commented specifically on 27 cases, uh, 27 specific cases. I will just uh, speak to a couple of them here. Without um, objection, it will be made a part I of the I thank you very much. Now, um, uh, you have already said to the chairman that you agree that there is a right to privacy. And you said the Supreme Court found such a right in part in the 14th Amendment. My question is, do you agree that there's not, not what said law is, what do you think? Do you agree that there is a right of privacy to be found in the Liberty Clause of the 14th Amendment? I do, Senator. I think that the court's expressions, and I think uh, if my reading of the precedent is correct, uh, I think every justice on the court believes that to some extent or another. Uh, liberty is not limited to freedom from physical restraint. Uh, it does cover uh, areas, as you said, such as privacy. And it's not protected only in procedural terms, but it is protected substantively as well. Uh, again, I think every member of the court subscribes to that proposition. Um, if they agree with Bowling against Sharp, as I'm sure all of them do, they are subscribing to that proposition to some extent or another. Um, do you think there's a liberty right of privacy that extends to women in the Constitution? Certainly. In the 14th Amendment? Certainly. Uh, now, I assumed you'd answer it that way. Let me, let me suggest to you also that uh, um, uh, I asked Justice, or I don't think, I'm not sure whether I asked or one of our colleagues asked Justice Ginsburg um, uh, the question of whether or not it would be a ball or a strike if, in fact, a state passed a law, the state, a state, passed a law prohibiting abortion. And she said, that's a foul ball. That's, they can't do that. And let me quote her. She said in response to Senator, uh, um, uh, former, I was going to say Brownback, Senator Brown, uh, when he was here, when she was up, of uh, Colorado. She said, quote, abortion prohibition by a state controls women and denies them full autonomy and full equality with men. It would be unconstitutional. What's your view? Well, Senator, According to Ginsburg rule. Well, uh, that is in an area where I think I should not respond. Because, Why? Because you said you'd abide by the Ginsburg rule. Judge, then Judge Ginsburg, now Justice Ginsburg, explained that she thought she was at greater liberty to discuss her writings. She'd written extensively on that area, and I think that's why she felt at greater liberty to talk about those cases. 
In other areas where she had not written, um, her response was uh, that it was inappropriate to comment. In particular, uh, I remember her response on the mayor and the Harris cases. She said, those are the court's precedents. I have no agenda to overrule them, and I will leave it at that. Um, uh, and I think that's important to adhere to that. Let me explain very briefly why. It's because if these questions test. come before me, uh, uh, either on the court on which I now sit, or if I am confirmed on the Supreme Court, I need to decide those questions with an open mind on the basis of the arguments presented, on the basis of the record presented in the case, and on the basis of the rule of law, including the precedence of the court, um, and not on the basis of any commitments during the confirmation process. The litigants have a right to expect that of the judges or justices before whom they appear. And it's not just ju Judge Justice Ginsburg who adhered to that rule. I've gone back and read. Well, she obviously didn't adhere to it. With well, I explained why she felt it. Well, how's that different? That I would suggest, Judge, is a distinction without a difference in terms of litigants. The way you've just explained it, there's a litigant, in fact, said because the judge wrote about it and then spoke to it as a judge, that somehow I am being, I'm going to be uh, uh, put at a disadvantage before that judge in the court. That's a stretch, Judge. Well, that's how Judge Ginsburg explained it at her nomination hearings. She said she could talk about the issues on which she had written. Did that make sense to you? I think it does make sense that she can be questioned about the articles that she'd written because they raised certain questions and she felt at liberty to discuss those. I think it's something entirely different if you talk about uh, an area that could come before the court. This is an area that have, the cases are pending before the court and likely will be pending in the future. Well, let's try some things she didn't write about that she talked about. Let's see how you t if you can talk about them. One is, um, uh, she uh, uh, talked about Moore versus East Cleveland. You're very familiar, much more familiar with the case than I am. That's a case where the city came along, and I'm going to do this shorthand in the interest of time, and said a grandma living in an apartment with her blood grandchildren who were, who were cousins, but not, not brothers, violated the law. And the chief said, in the, majority, in the minority opinion, your mentor, he said, the interest of that grandmother may have, that, that that grandmother may have in permanently sharing a single kitchen in a suite of contiguous rooms with some of her relatives simply does not rise to the level of a constitutional right. To equate this interest with fundamental decisions to marry and to bear and raise children is to extend the limited substantive contours of the Constitution beyond recognition. Do you agree with his statement? Um, you know, I have no quarrel with the majority's determination. Not my question, Judge. I understand that, that and, and I'm, I'm concerned about ramifications in which the issue could come up. But I have no quarrel with, with the majority's determination. Justice Ginsburg answered the question. She never wrote about it. She answered it specifically. She well, went I on to say that, and let me quote. She said, Yes, he goes on, this is quoting Justice Ginsburg, he goes on to say, history, counsel, caution, and restraint, and I agree with him. He says then, this is re referring to the majority opinion, but it does not counsel abandonment, abandonment of the notion that people have a right to certain fundamental decisions about their lives without interference with the state. And what he next says is, history doesn't counsel abandonment, nor does it require the city, in, uh, does it require what the city is urging here? cutting off the family right at the first boundary, which is a nuclear family. He rejects that. I'm taking a position I have her all, my, all the time. And he goes on, she goes on to say, she says, uh-uh, she thinks your old boss was dead wrong. She said so. And she said the majority was dead right. 
Ginsburg rule. What do you think? She never wrote about it. Senator, I think nominees have to draw the line where they're comfortable. Well, you're, a you're not applying to Ginsburg. Senator Biden, let him finish. It's a, it's I don't have much time. But go ahead. It's a matter of great importance, uh, not only to, the, to potential justices, but to judges. We're sensitive to the need to maintain the independence and integrity of the court. I think it's vitally important that nominees, to use Justice Ginsburg's words, no hints, no forecasts, no previews. They go on the court not as a delegate from this committee uh, with certain commitments laid out and how they're going to approach cases. They go on the court as justices who will approach cases with an open mind and decide those cases in light of the arguments presented, the record presented, and the rule of law. And the litigants before them have a right to expect that and to have the appearance of that as well. That has been the approach that all of the justices have taken. And that is not true, Judge. Justice Ginsburg violated that rule, according to you. Justice Ginsburg said, Ginsburg said precisely what position she agreed on. Did she, in fact, somehow compromise herself when she answered that question? She said no hints, no forecasts, no, no. no previews. Judge, she specifically, in response to a question, whether or not she agreed with majority or minority opinion, in Moore versus the city of Cleveland, said explicitly, I agree with the majority, and here's what the majority said, and I agree with it. My question to you is, do you agree with it or not? Well, I do know, uh, Senator, that in numerous other cases, because I read the transcript, so did she, I, took, she took the position that she should not comment. Justice O'Connor took the same position. She was asked about a particular oh, case. Judge, judge, she judge, said, it's not correct judge. for me to comment. Now. There's a reason but for that. Wait, 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 wait a minute, Senator Biden. He's not finished his answer. He's filibustering, Senator. Well, okay, uh, go ahead. No, he's not. We, no, it's we, we go ahead and do that. Words, uh, that's what we do. <laughs> go ahead. Go, go ahead and continue not to answer. Senator, my, my answer is that the independence and integrity of the Supreme Court requires that nominees before this committee for a position on that court not forecast, give predictions, give hints, about how they might rule in cases that might I got come before that, the court. Did Justice Ginsburg give a hint? Which I'm not going to question, comment on the specific question. I'm not going to comment on whether or not a particular nominee okay. adhered to the approach that they announced. Well, let's Her make it clear she did not. Let's stipulate she did not adhere, adhere to the approach. I don't have time because we don't have as much time, but I could list you for half an hour the questions she answered. The questions Kennedy, Souter, um, uh, uh, all the justices almost, with one exception, answer specific questions which you're not answering. And, but you're, but you're, and then I go on to my next question. Violence against women. I realize it's a bit of a hobby horse for me since I wrote the legislation. I know people say they wrote things. I mean, I actually did write that. My, my little old self with my staff. And uh, no one liked it, I might add, at first. Uh, women's groups or anybody else. Um, but uh, in 1999, uh, you said, in response to a question, uh, you're on a show, it was 1999, you were talking about um, a number of things, and you said, and I quote, you know, we've gotten to a point these days where we think the only way we can show we're serious about a problem is if we pass a federal law, whether it's the Violence Against Women Act or anything else. The fact of the matter is, conditions are different in different states, and state laws are more relevant is, I think, exactly the right term. More tuned to different situations in New York as opposed to Minnesota. 
And that's what the federal system is based upon. Judge, tell me how a guy beating up his wife in Minnesota is any different condition in New York. Senator, I was not speaking specifically to any piece of legislation there. That was making well, you mentioned very, violence against women. Though. That was the issue that had come up on the show. And the general issue that was uh, being addressed is a question of federalism. Uh, I think it was part of the genius of the founding fathers to establish a federal system with a national government to address issues of national concern, state and local government more close to the people to address issues of state and local concern, obviously issues of overlap as well. I was not expressing a view on any particular piece of legislation. And I think the statement well, you read confirms that. <laughs> okay. Um, judge, uh, is gender discrimination, as you've written in a memo, a perceived problem or is it a real problem? The memo you talked about, uh, Senator, I've had a chance to look at it. It, it concerned uh, a 50-state inventory of particular proposals to address it. Um, what perceived uh, was not being used in that case to suggest that there was any uh, doubt that there is gender discrimination and that it should be addressed. What it was referring to was a vast inventory and I was not sure if the particular proposals in each case were supported in every state of the 50 state survey that was involved. Um, of course gender discrimination is a serious problem. It's a particular concern uh, of mine and always has been. Uh, it would. Uh, uh, I grew up with three sisters, all of whom work uh, outside the home. Uh, I married a lawyer who works outside the home. Um, I have a young daughter who I hope will have all of the opportunities available uh, to uh, her without regard to any gender discrimination. There's no suggestion in anything that I've written of any resistance to the basic idea of full citizenship without regard to gender. Let me ask you a question then, Judge, uh, and that, I'm glad to hear that. Um, uh, do you think that the state law uh, distinguishes between a right that your daughter may have and your son may have or your wife may have or your sister may have and your brother may have? that the Supreme Court should engage in heightened scrutiny, not just look and see whether or not it makes any sense, but take an extra special look. You and I know the terms, but the public listening here, the Supreme Court has said since 1971, you know, when a state passes a law that treats in any way a woman different than a man, there may be a rationale for it, but the Supreme Court is going to take a very close look. Not strict scrutiny, which means you can hardly ever get over that bar like race, but can take a heightened look. They're going to look at it more closely. Do you think that that needs to be done? The Constitution calls for that? Yes, Senator, I do. And I, again, always have. The, dis the, the confusion is in the use of the term. There are those who use the term heightened scrutiny to refer to what you just called strict scrutiny, which is generally limited to issues of, of race or similar issues. The uh, discrimination on the basis of gender, distinctions on the basis of gender, uh, is subject to what the Supreme Court has called uh, intermediate scrutiny. There has to be a substantial government interest, uh, an important government interest, and a substantial connection in the discrimination. But uh, it's the, the Supreme Court's equal protection analysis has its three tiers now. Uh, well, I, I understand. I, I, uh, my, my time's running out. I'd love to hear with your, the explanation of three tiers, but let's stick with this one for just a second. Then explain to me what you meant 10 years after the decision 
laying out this level of scrutiny. When you wrote in an 81 memo to your boss, you wrote that gender, quote, is not a criterion calling for heightened judicial review. What do you mean? Referring to what you called strict scrutiny. Well, oh, I think you didn't know the difference between heightened and strict. Well, I was about to lay it out, and you said oh. you didn't want to hear about it. Uh, uh, strict scrutiny is the... Uh, no, I know what that is. I wonder what you Senator meant Biden, by Senator Biden, let him finish his answer. But I have oh. no time left, Mr. Chairman. I understand the answer. <laughs> I understand that the well, Supreme Court has three levels of scrutiny. My point was, in the context of this memo, in the context of this memorandum, the question was whether or not the court should, in fact, have a heightened scrutiny. And, Senator, the memorandum is using heightened scrutiny the way you use strict scrutiny, which is the scrutiny that's limited to the basis of race. It's the, the gender discrimination is, as you know, subject to what's called intermediate scrutiny, right. and uh, that is not what the memo is referring to uh, with respect to heightened scrutiny. It's referring to the strict scrutiny that's re restricted to issues of race and ethnicity. Well, I'll come back to that in the second round because that's not my reading of what you said. But um, let, me, uh, let me get on another issue here, um, again, in the sex discrimination area. Um, uh, the, uh, the Attorney General uh, for Civil Rights, uh, a, a former Delawarean, not viewed as a darling of the left, uh, uh, Bradford Reynolds, um, decided that we should, uh, the state, the federal government should take, take action against the state of Kentucky. Um, and they said that there's a very strong record that Kentucky prison system discriminates, discriminates against female prisoners. And I'm going to face my whole questions. And you wrote to the Attorney General, I recommend you do not improve, approve intervention in this case. And then you set out three reasons why you shouldn't approve of it. Not that there wasn't discrimination. You said, one, that private plaintiffs have already bring in suit. Secondly, the United States argument would have been based upon giving higher scrutiny to claims of gender classification. And thirdly, that we need to be concerned about tight prison budgets, you say, and you go on to explain that if in fact you hold them to the same standard, they may get rid of the program for the men. Now, Explain to me your thinking there. I mean, that seems to be silly. I'm sorry. What, I, I'm, what was the date of the memo, Senator? The date of the memo um, was uh, February 12, 1982. I'll give you a copy. I have to bring down a copy well, of the memo. I can't elaborate on. Uh, I can't elaborate on what's in, beyond what's in the memo. I, I would. I just well, I hope you it. don't still hold that view, man. I mean, if the idea that. You're not going to, that the, the, the conservative civil rights, head of the civil rights division, the Reagan administration says it's pretty clear Kentucky is discriminating against women in their, presence, their prison system. And you say, in effect, that may be, but look, we shouldn't move on. I recommend we don't do anything about this. And the reason we don't, she shouldn't do anything about this is threefold. One, private citizen already went ahead and filed suit on this. Number two, if in fact you go ahead and do this, they may do away with the system for the men because there's tight budgets. And I forget the third one, you now have the memo. But, uh, well, I, well, and I, ha I have the memo and see that uh, one of the areas that you mentioned, I say that uh, this is to the Attorney General, and I say the reason we shouldn't do this is because you have publicly opposed such approaches. Um, so again, it would have been... It was only his idea then? I mean, you, you were just protecting him so he wouldn't be inconsistent? I was a lawyer on his staff, and according to this memorandum, and I've, again, I don't remember anything independently 
uh, of this 23 years ago, uh, but the memorandum suggests that to a staff lawyer to his boss that this is inconsistent with what you have said. And it, uh, again, I guess I would regard that as good staff work rather than anything else. I regard it as very poor staff work, all due, due respect, uh, Judge, because it seems to me you insert your views very strongly in here. You don't say, you said, you said this. You say, by the way, there's other reasons why we shouldn't do this. Assume you're saying you, you wouldn't go this route before, but I want to give you more ammunition here, uh, um, Brad. Private plaintiffs have done this. It's inconsistent with three themes in your judicial restraint effort, equal protection claim, relief of, of a uh, well-involved judicial inference, et cetera. Um, and by the way, the end result may be with tight budgets, they may do away with this. My time is running out. Let me, I'll, I'll come back to this. I hope you get a chance to study it between now and the time we get back to the second round. Uh, uh, next question. You know, I find it fascinating, this whole thing about Title IX and whether or not by Title IX you and I know what we're talking about, but for the public at large who really is an interest in all of this as well, um, the issue was whether or not when a student gets aid, whether or not it only goes to the admissions piece of it. Now, you said something that was accurate, but I don't think fulsome to Senator Kennedy. And correct me if I'm wrong. You said, look, we were arguing that it did apply. Title IX did apply. If a student got aid, it applied to the university. That was one of the questions, whether or not you have no application or a narrow application. And you argued that it should apply to the admissions process. But there's a second issue in that case. And the second issue is, do you apply it narrowly only to the admissions policy, or do you apply to if they're discriminating in dormitories? I got your answer on the first part. You thought it should apply, at least narrowly. Were you arguing that it should apply broadly? And this was before, let me make it clear, the district court, I say to my friends, because I'd forgotten this, the district court had ruled that this only applies to admissions. And there was a question, the chairman of Reagan's Commission on Civil Rights said, we should get in on the side of the plaintiff here, and we should appeal this to the Supreme Court, or to a higher court, and say, no, no, this applies across the board. This applies if you don't put money in sports programs, you don't put money in dormitories, etc. What was your position on the Reagan Civil Rights Chairman, Clarence Pendleton, suggesting that we appeal the decision of the circuit court narrowly applying it only to the admissions office? Senator, I was a staff lawyer. I didn't have a position. Uh, the administration had a position. And the administration's position was the twofold position you set forth. First, Title IX applies. Second, it applies to the office. The Only to the office. office, right? It applies narrowly. Now, now, now wait a minute. Let him finish his answer, Senator Biden. The answers are misleading, with all due respect. Well, they, they no, may be. Now, now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. They may be me misleading, but they're his answer. Okay, fine. They may finish, Judge Fire away. Roberts. Fire away. They, with, I, with, with, I'm misunderstanding respect, your answer. With respect, they are my answers, and, and with respect, they're not misleading. They're accurate. Uh, this is I a, a mitigation dispute that was 20-some years ago. Uh, the effort was to interpret what this body, Congress, meant. The administration position was federal financial aid triggers coverage. It's limited to the admissions office. The United States Supreme Court agreed on both counts. And so I would say that the administration correctly interpreted the intent of Congress in enacting that legislation. Well, let me read what you wrote in that memo. You said you, 
quote, strongly agreed. Now, when my staff sends me a memo saying, Senator, I recommend you, you do the following, and I strongly agree, that usually is a pretty good indication what they think. Now, maybe they don't. Maybe they just like to use the word strongly. They said, strongly agreed. Usually means they agree, number one. Number two, you went on to say, and I quote, that if you have the broad interpretation, quote, it will be the, 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 uh, the, the federal government will be rummaging, quote, willy-nilly through institutions. So you expressed not only that you strongly agreed, but you thought that if you gave them this power to broadly interpret it, to apply to dormitories and all these other things, that they'd willy-nilly, uh, they'd rummage willy-nilly through institutions. Seems to me you had a pretty strong view back then. Maybe you don't have it now. Well, and the Supreme Court's conclusion was that that administration position was a correct reading of the law that this body passed. So if the view was strongly held, it was because I thought that was a correct reading of the law. The Supreme Court concluded that it was a correct reading of the law. Thanks, Judge. Thank you, Senator. Thank you very much, Senator Biden. Uh, we will uh, recess now until uh, 2.15. Audible thanks you for listening to the Senate Judiciary Committee's hearings on the nomination of Judge John Roberts to be Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Please visit audible.com for the best downloadable audiobooks, as well as subscriptions and podcasts of top audio programs, including Fresh Air, Car Talk, Scientific American, Harvard Business Review, and Charlie Rose. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.